brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. There's an intimacy involved in playing existence that is beyond description. In the not-too-distant future, Allegra Geller has created the ultimate escape. The possibilities are so great. This is amazing. A parallel universe called... Existence. Now I'm warning you. It's going to be a wild ride. It taps into your deepest emotions. You're the power source. Your body, your nervous system, your energy. It unleashes your wildest urges. I can't help myself. I'm saying it. A serious urge to kill someone here. Do it. It's just a game. But it's the first genuine threat to reality. It's a lot more fun when it starts feeling realer than real. And someone wants it stopped at all costs. You're worth a lot of money. Five million dollars for your dead body. Step into my office. Allegra, we need help. The only way I can tell if everything's okay is to play existence with somebody friendly. Are you friendly? Play with me. Wrong. Oh, God. What happened? Let's 
now, aren't you? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. With me this week are my poop pals, Dustin and Jessica, from the podcast Popcorn Poops. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Very, very good to be on the illustrious Projection Booth podcast. This week we are talking about the 1990 film from director-writer David Cronenberg, Existence. The film stars Jennifer Jason Lee as Allegra Geller, a game designer who has been marked for death by a faction known as the Realists. After an assassination attempt, she escapes with her ineffectual bodyguard, a PR nerd named Ted Peichel, played by Jude Law. The pair eventually test out Allegra's new game, Existence, in order to make sure that her biomass game pod is still functional. From there, the film traverses many layers of gameplay, making viewers question what's real and what's part of play. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined for you, please turn off the podcast, go watch the movie, and come on back. We will still be here. So, Jessica, when was the first time you saw Existence, and what did you think? Gosh, the first time. I'm, it was a while back when um, Dustin started getting me into Cronenberg. I think the first Cronenberg movie I saw was The Brood, actually, which was a great start. And I'm not sure when the first time I saw Existence was, but I do remember not being totally crazy about it, getting kind of frustrated there at the end. And then, of course, revisiting it years later, I kind of realized that that's part of the point. So, <laughs> so I came to like it more after... Uh, multiple viewings, but the first time I didn't love it. How about you, Dustin? I guess I was in college the first time I saw it. I had a friend who uh, introduced me to Cronenberg just as a filmmaker. Of course, I had been familiar with at least The Fly from my childhood. It it left nice big scars on my psyche. Uh, but in college, yeah, I had a friend who who uh, pitched this movie to me with the the whole Matrix similarities thing. Like the whole, did you know there was another movie in 1999 that that came out that was kind of similar to the Matrix and was totally buried by the success of that film? And I was like, oh really? And uh, we watched it and I, I became a big fan at the time, but uh, kind of like Jessica over the years, each time I've watched it, I've uh, seen more in the film, uh, but then also kind of seen the scenes a little bit more, uh, but then kind of come back around and realize that perhaps the seams are the point. And I'm sure that we're going to we're going to get into that. So I, I would say that generally I'm, I'm actually quite a big fan of, of this movie with all my peaks and valleys of uh, uh, admiring it <laughs> over the years. I was just uh, rewatching The Fly yesterday and uh, kind of reminiscing about the first time that I saw it. My mom actually took me and a friend of mine to see it, and we were all of 14 years old. I don't know if that was 100% appropriate for for 14-year-olds, but shortly thereafter, I remember watching Videodrome, which probably wasn't appropriate also. But Videodrome quickly became one of my favorite films, especially when I was in uh, later high school, early college years. And I watched a lot of Cronenberg. So it was funny. I kind of came to him more from the fly and the, the Videodrome uh, world rather than Scanners. I mean, I caught Scanners way late. I had just seen that one clip of the head exploding and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. And then the, um, I, I always get the scanners and the fury mixed up because they were both in terror in the aisles. Do you guys remember that compilation film terror in the aisles? No, I don't. I'm not familiar with that. It was, uh, Nancy Allen and Donald Pleasance hosting all of these clips from horror films. And it did a really good job of introducing people to different horror movies. So like 
I mean, horror in a broad sense. So things like Ms. 45 was in there, just like kind of uh, lower budget, really good exploitation type films. But, right. Uh, but yeah, they had clips from The Fury and they had clips from Scanners. So we got to see mm-hmm. some good um, telekinetic deaths going on. Mm-hmm. Nice. The best kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> but, but then after a while, I kind of lost touch with Cronenberg and I didn't even check out Existence until probably a couple of years afterwards. And kind of like you, Dustin, I came to it as like, oh, here's a movie that was kind of similar to The Matrix. I guess I really can't be blamed because I didn't realize I don't like to harp on like box office very much at all, but I didn't realize just how limited the opening to this movie was and just how much it didn't make in returns, unfortunately. And yeah, definitely. I think that was the matrix had a big part of that because that movie was huge and existence is much more of an art film. Oh yeah. Just kind of a blip on the radar. If, if even that, but like you, I didn't really care for it the first time that I saw it, but now revisiting it and uh, like you were saying, th- those seams and seeing those seams and yeah, just because uh, at first when I first watched this movie, I thought it was just really clunky. I mean, the acting and everything and Jude Law's uh, Canadian accent and Ian Holm and, and Don McKellar, their thick, crazy Russian accents. Wow, I, I had no idea what to make of that. And then you see the end, things start to make more sense, but you really have to dive back into it a few more times before you start to put it together and appreciate it a little bit more. Cronenberg is probably my favorite filmmaker of all time. Uh, he, he's got at least three of his movies in my top ten of all time. I would say the Videodrome is probably my favorite of his, but I'm a very huge fan of The Dead Zone. I think The Dead Zone is kind of uh, one of his unsung masterpieces, and uh, that's a that's a movie I like to revisit a lot because it feels a lot like Cronenberg Restrained, uh, and which is a really interesting thing to see. Uh, I think he's been playing around a lot more recently with that whole Cronenberg Restrained thing uh, to varying levels of success but uh the dead zone is 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 way up there for me and i don't know i don't know how how you feel about the dead zone but um well i love the dead zone and that movie's been on my mind a lot lately i mean since um november of last year mr vice president mr secretary the missiles are flying hallelujah hallelujah I feel bad saying existence because I really thought that that was one of the film's tripping points was like this shitty title, but yeah, I'll say it anyway. <laughs> it sounds so hoity toity, you know, existence. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> and I love how they start with Christopher Eccleston, you know, explaining it and talking about the, the uppercase X and the uppercase Z and explaining what the software is. I mean, we're really, part of that audience that they have at the opening of that film, which interestingly enough takes place in a church. It kind of reminds me of like an AA meeting where you expect people to stand up and start to give like their stories and, you know, hello, Mark, get this coffee's in the back. It kind of does have that AA meeting feel, which I, I think is appropriate because I, I do feel like there's at least images 
uh, motifs, if you will, of, of addiction uh, in this movie. And uh, I think that that's, that's really interesting. But I also think that the audience, uh, those early adopters of this game are particularly interesting because it's probably the most diverse group of er- like early tech adopters that I've ever seen. I don't think there's a neck beard in the crowd, which is, is a little troubling, but, uh, but interesting nonetheless. Well, they definitely show that, you know, at this point in this, wherever this future is, um, that it's everybody it, like what the, we wanted to do, right. Where like grandma and grandpa are playing video games, <laughs> right. That like, like every, the average Joe, uh, uses virtual reality. I think we really will get there. I think that really will happen, but probably not the way they show it. Um, but anyways, back to the idea of like this being in a church and it looking like an AA meeting, there is so much in this film where it feels like it's about drugs or, or about sex addiction, but also about drug addiction too. That's definitely intentional. Well, yeah, there's a, some scenes later on where our main character, and I would consider our, our main character, Allegra Geller, the Jennifer Jason Lee character, it seems like she is jonesing for a fix. Yeah, the entire time throughout the uh, the whole movie, it just feels like it, it makes her, I think, kind of unlikable even because you constantly Ted Peichel refers to it repeatedly where where he's just like, now you want to you want to uh, play now. Um, she can't stop no matter what kind of uh, situation they're in. So definitely feels like that. And then images of them like laying catatonic on the bed and in the hotel room or in the chalet or are kind of reminiscent of a scenes in, you know, in other movies where, where people have just like, you know, shot up with some junk and, and are just kind of nodding out for a while. Uh, I think that those, there's some parallel imagery there to, you know, scenes of uh, drug use in other movies and those shared drug use experiences. The kind of places they go to, right? Like they go to, to this old gas station in the country to get their stuff, to get their fix so that he can get the port. Just some of, some of the places, like you said, the motel and stuff, it, the settings really feel like they would be in a drug movie and maybe not a video game movie. <laughs> right. The back room at the GameStop, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've worked at a GameStop. I can tell you that room exists. The whole idea of them in that hotel room so reminds me of Robert De Niro in Once Upon a Time in America, where he's just completely zoned out riding the dragon on opium. That's what that particular thing reminded me of. So we do start in this church, and we get this whole explanation. So like I said, the Eccleson character is really explaining to us as well as the people in the audience. And yeah, I was really focused in on the old people in the audience. They kind of reminded me almost of those uh, the old people that take uh, Betty to uh, her aunt. Aunt Ruth's apartment in Mulholland Drive. They're just like so into it. And so, yay, this is great. And we get to hear about this new technology, this new game from Allegra Geller, Existence by Transcendence, I believe. And it's really neat how, or is it Antenna? I think Existence is made by Antenna and Transcendence. I can't remember. Cortical System? Cortical System at? Cortical systematics might be transcendence or it might be the smaller pod that they get inside existence, the one that gets sucked into their backs. That might be the one by cortical. I can't remember. <laughs> there, there are a few companies. I think transcendence is the overall when I think about it. And then, yeah, ex- existence. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting how many layers we have. And it, at first I was thinking that there were three layers, but then I realized, oh no, there's actually four layers going on. And then who knows, there might be other layers within this. 
Oh, I'm interested to hear what you think the layers are, because I originally thought there were three layers, but now I think there's only two. So I think that yeah, we've gotten into this. Before. Yeah, we, we've, we've had arguments. Our, our marriage has been on the line. <laughs> As it often is with films. Yes, that's, that's how it goes. Well, I guess we can kind of label them as we go through. I would say that we start on layer two. Layer one is what we come to at the very end of the film. But then at the same time, I don't know if there's layers outside of that. Sure, of course. And that's kind of what the last line of the, the, the film hints at is the possibility that they are still in the game or still in a game. So yeah, I would agree that, that we start on a, uh, a layer two, so to speak, layer one being quote unquote reality as far as we're concerned. And we have this assassination attempt that I mentioned where we have this guy come in and he's got this amazing gun, probably one of the best props that I've ever seen. And it is so David Cronenberg, this thing that they call the gristle gun, which, of course, avoids any sort of metal detection because it's made out of bone and sinew. This thing looks so gross and is so cool. <laughs> it is a thing of goddamn beauty, I swear. Jim Isaac, of course, the late, great Jim Isaac, who went on to, to direct Skinwalkers and, and Jason X, came up with this this thing that he dubbed the Grizzle Gun, which is such a great name for a, a weapon of this type. It just, without even seeing it, you think Grizzle Gun, and I think something like this might very well pop into your head, but the way they built this thing out of, uh, out of little dinosaur model kits they they gathered a whole bunch of dinosaur model kits together and just kind of pieced them together until they figured out and engineered you know several of these guns that they could uh that they could use for various scenes and i think he said they had like four four different types one was a, a the cocker loader that they could load the teeth into and cock it back and then one was one that actually shot and then there were a, a couple of other different types one of course was one that could actually be dismantled and put back together which ted peichel does uh later in the chinese restaurant scene but yeah i absolutely agree uh, and again we touched on it uh, in in our episode on on existence and po- on popcorn poops that this is one of the great unsung movie props of all time really oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's amazing I would love a, a replica. My birthday's coming up, so, you know. <laughs> well, you just go up to the Royal Ontario Museum, and I'm sure that they have them in the gift shop. Sure. Oh, yeah, awesome. you know, 1999. Canadian, <laughs> so, you know. That and then some of those cool tools from uh, Dead Ringers. Oh, yes. Things you don't want to get your wife or girlfriend. Unless she's a very special lady. I've known ladies who have uh, nearly passed out watching Dead Ringers, and I can completely understand. So the gristle gun, yes, as you mentioned, it shoots teeth, which is a fantastic thing. And this uh, particular assassin uh, cries out death to the demoness Allegra Geller as he shoots at Allegra, who is trying to demonstrate her new game, which is Existence. So the name of her game, the name of our movie, same thing. And the way that these game pods, so they have this whole thing of these biomorphic external game pods where they actually plug into your back via a a game port. And I love these things. I mean, again, another amazing Cronenberg prop, these body extension type of things where you actually have to turn on the game by like flicking what looks like a nipple or a clitoris <laughs> yeah it's just it's just a ball of clits and tits and lips like it's just that's all it is 
<laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. This is, I mean, if you really need that, some of that Cronenberg practical, if you need a fix, so to speak, I guess in, in, in uh, much of the way that Allegra Geller might need a fix, uh, if you need a Cronenberg fix, I think this is a pretty good movie to go to for some of that practical prop work, those practical effects. Uh, and there is a little bit of CG in this movie, and I'm sure we'll touch on it. But uh, yeah, if you're looking for that, I think this movie definitely delivers. Well, I'll put out there right now that when I rewatched this recently, my so I, I rewatched the theatrical version, and then I watched the work print version, which was very interesting to compare because the work print version didn't have those digital effects, and it was just all the practical effects. So, and then I was listening to the uh, commentary track from the special effects supervisor and hearing him talk about how they would enhance some things. And, you know, this was digital blood was added here and this was done and this was done. But he tried and they tried so much to make as many of these effects practical that when I was watching the work print version before they had gone in and talk about layers had added that extra layer of the digital manipulation it was fantastic because so many of the effects were already there. It wasn't like, you know, you're looking at a green box and waiting for something to be put in. These actors are actually manipulating these props and, you know, you've got your, your servos and your remote control units and all these things going on. So we're actually seeing these things in real time, which was really amazing. Some of my favorite use of CGI in movies is to enhance things that are already there as opposed to, like you said, filling in a green box or just throwing something up behind actors and, you know, having them watch a, a, a tennis ball at the end of a rod move around uh, like uh, the squibs. I think every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at U.S. Border Patrol. Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Squibs are a good example. Um, I think that they look really good because they, they help sell the drama of the gunshots. Uh, since we're actually seeing the actors being shot instead of stunt performers, uh, Jim Isaac, the, the special effects coordinator, uh, actually mentioned that since they were using the actual actors like Christopher Eccleston, for example, um, they couldn't use a full load, so to speak, in, in the squib. So that's where the CGI came in. And had I not heard that from him, that there was C, uh, computer enhancement to those squibs, I would have never known because they, they look fine to me. So I think some of that stuff works. Other places, particularly the, the two-headed lizard creature that will come up uh, mm. come on later, uh, I'm not a huge fan of. But then there's some, you know, there's a practical side to that CGI lizard that I think looks really great in comparison. And it's kind of, it's such a stark contrast that I think it makes the CGI puppet, so to speak, look even worse by, by that comparison. So going back, if we can 
for just a second back to the game pods looking like like they're alive, like they're part of a body. I really feel like with Cronenberg, of course, that's more uh, talking about, you know, how how body horror is kind of his thing. So a lot of my notes, a lot of the things that I say in our episode about this movie talk about Freud. And one of the things that Freud is known for is the uncanny, this idea of the familiar being frightening. And Cronenberg just, he just gets that in his films. He gets that our bodies, which are perhaps most familiar thing that we physically can ever experience, he turns into something that's terrifying constantly. He turns bodies into these terrifying things. And he does that with, with the game pods too. So I think it's just a nice tie into kind of how he does horror. These game pods and the gristle gun, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about Videodrome as we go through this episode, but they so remind me of the videotape that gets shoved into Max Wren, the gun hand that he has. I mean, especially there's, there's the famous gun hand that Max Wren has where you see the metal parts kind of bearing into his veins and into his arm. And there's another one where it just looks like he, well, it looks like James Woods is wearing a glove, but it's all glistening and just really grody looking. Those things look like they're from the same world. I mean, obviously, they're from the same mind of the same person, but I love that there's that realism to all of that as well. Usually when you see this marriage of the technological and the biological and this this type of body horror, it's more often the technological encroaching on the biological. But I think that Existence does this interesting reversal of that where it is the biological that makes up the technological, that the, that the gun is a piece of technology that's made of biological components, that the, the game pod is basically an animal, that they're making, uh, what would be machines, uh, made out of metal and, you know, chips and PCB and wires, and they're making them out of, you know, nervous systems and bones and, and blood and things like that. Um, and I think that's really fascinating because I don't, I can't think of another example off the top of my head that does it quite like this where it's actual machines made up of of biological material. A quote that I found from Cronenberg about existence, he says, most technology can be seen as an extension of the human body in one way or another. And I show this literally in the film. Um, and and when when we're looking at Freud. So I found this fantastic article by a professor from uh, University of California in Santa Cruz. Her name is Teresa de Lourdes, I believe. And in this this paper, she talks about how this movie reflects on Freud's notion of the drive. So we have the death drive and we have Eros, the life drive, and how throughout this whole movie, we've got this binary basically of destruction and creation and technology for Cronenberg in this movie is connected to the body and to the psyche and it creates virtual reality. Whereas for Freud in the drive theory, we basically we have the mental and the body which creates the human psyche. So like our human reality. And so there's this, this cool connection between those two things that for Freud, the body and the mind creating reality. And for Cronenberg, it's technology and, and the mind creating reality, creating a virtual reality or the body and the game pod creating a virtual reality. It's just interesting to see those two kind of things repeated throughout this movie. I like that. It's, a female game designer and that 
Yeah, we can, I guess we can debate who is our protagonist in this film, because is it Pykel? Is it Allegra? Because I do agree that Allegra sometimes comes off as a little bit harsh um, and and maybe a little bit distancing. And maybe maybe I empathize more with Pykel because I'm a man. I'm not exactly sure if that's the case or not, because there are times where Pykel is, well, he's a noob. He, he doesn't know anything about this, and so he's kind of more my stand-in than Allegra, because in this world, I don't know exactly what's going on, and I also don't know if I would necessarily uh, be okay with having a, a, a bioport stuck into my lower back. Maybe I would. I mean, it's one of those things that I like that Allegra at one point talks about how, you know, it's so commonplace and it's just like getting your ears pierced at the mall. And at the same time, I'm like, well, that's something else that I'm sure Pykel has never actually done. I mean, his body, you know, he, he has a phobia about getting penetrated medically. And I, I know I'm kind of jumping the gun, but really, I mean, there's there's uh, just one piece that is missing between there. There's the whole idea of her being assassinated, them going on the run. I mean, it, it feels almost like a Hitchcock film here where we got, okay, the, the couple on the run now, and they stop at this, and I love the line about, you know, we have to find an old country gas station, and they find this you know, old country gas station. Literally, it's called the old country gas station. Run by a man named Gas. Um, <laughs> One of those amazing Willem Dafoe performances. I mean, he's it, he's uh, just up there with Bobby Peru, you know, as far as like having this character who comes in and makes such an amazing impression on the film. He's only in the film for, what, 10 minutes or something, but he just owns every single scene that he's in. He is amazing. You know, Allegra, like you were saying, she wants to play this game, her, and I love how she calls the game pot her baby. My baby's been damaged, you know, we have to see if my baby's okay, you know, this is the only copy of this game, we have to pour it in, make sure my baby's okay, and in order to do that, Ted then has to undergo this procedure, and I know that there have been reams of papers written about this whole penetration scene mm-hmm. <laughs> of gas, and this amazing... Jack, well, it's almost like a double penetration because, and I don't mean that in the porn version, but I mean that, (laughs) you know, he, he, he shoots him once to numb the area and then shoots him again with the, to actually put the bioport in with just that jackhammer looking thing that a oversized gun that he's got yeah it's, it's pretty amazing i've i've always thought that that willem dafoe is kind of uh the one man who was born to play a cronenberg protagonist but has only ever been just a side character in this movie but absolutely steals the show when he's when he's in the movie this is one of the things that i really remember about this movie when it's been some time since i've seen it it's like oh man willem dafoe as that as that crazy gas station owner who who uh who botches uh old jude law's back hole <laughs> uh and i think it's uh, and and I think it's interesting that you that you you mentioned Hitchcock because there is kind of that you know them hitting the road together kind of on the lam a little bit, um and and kind of the the visual of them in the car for the first time you know with that back plate that process shot that shot day for night which is such a you know a, a Hitchcockian technique that um they didn't have to do in 1999 they absolutely didn't have to do that they could have done that you know on location or they could have you know done it uh, uh with uh with green screen and 
probably made it look a, a lot better than it does. But, you know, there's there's something to that process shot. There's something to that that aggressively blue day for night that I think is is uh, is very Hitchcocky. And so it's I like that you mentioned that because I didn't think of that before. That just kind of, you know, popped in there. That irreality is one of our first moments that we get that if we haven't already been tipped off by the gristle gun, if we haven't been tipped off by the biopods, that day for night process shot is one of those moments where it's just like things aren't necessarily right. And then you really get that with that appearance of the two-headed amphibian. I'm going to call it a bug, even though they specifically call it an amphibian in the the film. But just for some reason, I always think bug when I see this thing. I do too. That's Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's a moment where you're just like, we are not in Kansas anymore. This is not right. You know, we may be in a future state here where things have mutated, and maybe that kind of explains it away. But really, when you see this thing, and it's just that moment of the uncanny where you're just like, okay, this is my signal. I should realize right now that we are not in the real world. Right before the bug, there's, I think, another another hint for us that we're not in, in the real world, that we're perhaps already in that layer of virtual reality, which we are uh, level level two, I guess you're calling it. I think it would be level two, unless we're getting really philosophical and talking about the real world that we're watching the movie in as being a level because because a lot of people would do that, too. So um, but there is another hint right before the bug, and that's her walking around while he's talking to the mechanic and she's walking around and she's like smelling the gasoline and like feeling all over the concrete walls. And you get this feeling that she's that she doesn't feel like this is reality, that like she's she's experiencing this as though it's something special and not just the outside of a weird old country gas station. And there is something to that texture, the texture of reality, her walking around and and absorbing things through her senses, you know, looking out into the darkness and feeling, you know, the texture of the gas pump and smelling the gasoline and then touching the little bug creature as it climbs up the the gas pump. And I, I think that, you know, texture is one of those things that grounds us to reality. And and the the opening credit sequence going all the way back to the beginning of the movie, the opening credit sequence is nothing but a series of textures. Like that's all it is. It's pretty indistinct. You can see maybe some bones in there. You might be able to distinguish, oh, that might be a patch of dirt or that's some concrete. But I think that's that's an interesting point to be made because um, I think texture is the only sense that we can't trick. We can trick our sight. We can trick hear our hearing. We can trick our smell. All of our senses can be tricked, but I don't think our sense of touch can really be tricked. And when, if we can touch something, then we know it's real. And I I think that that's, that's kind of the point that he's making when she kind of strikes out on her own and goes around just kind of feeling things. And, you know, that can be seen in, in how they manipulate the pods and in uh, the way they do many things in, in the movie. Well, what you think I'm really excited about virtual reality. I've, I've been excited about it for way longer than it was even feasible. And now that we're getting somewhere near reality with virtual reality, I'm super excited. And I, 
can't, as excited as I am about being able to look around and hear and maybe even smell at some point, I feel like we're still really far away from, from the day when we're going to be able to touch. But the way she acts in that scene is exactly how I will, if I live long enough to see it, act in that kind of a real virtual reality, just touching things, just being like, oh my God, this concrete. Wow. <laughs> this gas station. So I feel like she's acting the way someone would act if they weren't in reality and they knew it. The thing that came to my mind when you guys were talking about that is, I don't know if you've ever been to Universal Studios down in Florida or perhaps California, but they have, a, for lack of a better term, a ride. It is the Terminator ride that they have down there. And that is one of the greatest and most frustrating rides ever because experiencing that, I mean, that is one of those multiple layer kind of things that we're discussing as far as when you are part of the line, you are part of this experience. They have these monitors where they're talking about Cyberdyne systems and their you know, new improvements to the world and all these kind of things. You move into a room and there's a representative from Cyberdyne who is you know, really smarmy and giving you this whole thing about how great it is to work at Cyberdyne. And then her, her like a monitor cuts out and you can see Eddie Furlong and, and Linda Hamilton. And then you move into the room and it's this big theater and you get a movie, you have your 3D glasses on. And what I'm talking about with frustration is that that is the best 3D that I've ever seen. So when I went to see Avatar, we're probably going to talk about avatars at some point, but when I went to see Avatar, I was like, okay, I'm expecting 3D as good as that because we've got James Cameron doing one, we've got James Cameron doing the other. It's going to feel like at one point this T1 million kind of comes out of the screen and looks around and moves around and you feel like this thing is right there in front of you and it shatters at one point. And there's a cool mist of water that comes over you. And that's that moment where I think it really just moves beyond everything. You guys are talking about texture and touch. And when you feel that cool water hit you, it just takes you out of it because it's one of those, it's a, it's almost like one of those, like you put your hand in the uh, jar full of grapes and they tell you it's eyeballs, you know, it tricks your senses. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And it really just zapped me into this whole world it's the next level yeah absolutely yeah and so uh, what we're talking about as far as texture and and tricking our senses that way can texture be tricked can we get that tactile sense through i don't know gloves a bodysuit these kind of things i mean is it going to be like the tingler where something like you know, hits you in the back of your, your back and makes you think that something <laughs> is in the theater with you. You know, right. will it be that cheesy or will it be sublime? And I'm very curious where we're going to land with that. And I'm, I, I, like you, Jessica, I want to know where we're headed with this thing because if you can trick me when it comes to the texture, I think that's really going to be key. I spend way too much time on YouTube just watching videos of people in other countries who are trying to develop, uh, things for us to use with virtual reality. And the one I've seen that I think is going to be our first step in the closest is like an exoskeleton glove. And what it does is it, it adds resistance. So like when you squeeze something as if you were going to pick up a baseball bat, the glove keeps you from closing your hand to the point where like it would 
be the amount of holding a baseball bat. Like that's how far you can close your hand. And so, which to me kind of blew my mind when I saw it because it's the opposite. I keep thinking it'll be something on our palm where we can feel something. But I think the first thing we're going to get is resistance, that we're going to wear things that that let us know the weight of something or the shape of something. And then maybe the texture will come. I didn't even notice that, that she was going around or, or like it didn't strike me as that odd until I saw that two-headed bug. Comparing the theatrical with the work print, that was one of those moments where I really wish they had just kept the practical effect that they had in the work print. But then at the same time, the CGI bug that they ended up going with, and I think that they do a, a mix of practical and CGI with some things, but there are some definite 100% CGI shots. And it's just like, okay, you know, like if this wasn't a red flag before, it definitely is now because it looks so fucking fake. To see the, the practical effect that they had, where it was kind of neat because you can, the first time I saw the work print, I was just like, what am I looking at right now? Because I could see people's hands in like, long black wands and then I realized, oh, they're manipulating the heads of this thing. So you could actually see the rod and the puppeteer's hands. They hadn't like taken them out of the shot. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> the shot of, I believe the shot, the close-up is still in the theatrical version of where she's touched, actually touching the creature. I believe that's still practical. Um, and they, they did, that was just a puppet where they removed the rods out and it could, might have some CG enhancement, um, but I believe Jim Isaac on the commentary said that that is that is still the practical. I hate anything that's not a practical effect a lot, a lot of times. I feel like if you can go practical, you should go practical, especially in horror. I'm really big about it with horror. And and so I'm always one to argue for the practical. And I agree that the bug amphibian, whatever it is, creature looks awful in CG. However, though, it does kind of go along with my whole idea that some of this movie, all of this movie is sort of critic proof because even in that moment where I'm like, this doesn't look real, it isn't reality. Like we're one step into virtual reality. So every time, and that's why I think I hated this movie the first time I saw it is because I hadn't seen the end yet. So I didn't know that this wasn't reality, of course. But now when I go back, like in the moment where he pulls the tooth out of her, out of her shoulder, and there's this line. He's like, what I just dug out of you, it's a tooth. And when I watch that now, I'm like, oh, God, I, I don't like the writing here. I want I just it would have a much bigger impact if you would just show me the tooth and be like, look at this instead of just saying the line. It's very it's very an odd choice, I think, for a line of dialogue. But when I look at it now, it doesn't matter because it's not reality and it's supposed to be kind of poorly written, right? Like a little bit. Um, because when they go into that next level, it's definitely intentionally poorly written, and they comment on Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. And how it's intentionally like, oh, I don't think his dialogue's very good. Like they say that in the movie. So even that CG moment, as much as I dislike it, I can kind of I can kind of even back out of it and be like, well, 
this isn't reality here. Trying to watch this movie with any kind of sense of pragmatism or logic or anything like that can be a really frustrating, uh, um, you know, uh, attempt, I guess, because um, like she said, I think that the, the movie is it does kind of critic proof itself by um, by potentially being intentionally. Uh, I guess kind of false or fake or, you know, the actors are maybe directed to be a little bit wooden and the writing is a little bit stilted and the effects don't look just right because they're supposed to be surreal. They're supposed to be unreal. Um, and that, I think that that's, um, that's another thing that, that really stands out to me about this movie. That's one thing I really liked listening to that effects commentary where they were talking. And I can't actually, I can't remember if it was the effects commentary or Cronenberg's commentary where he's talking about, the outfits and the lack of jewelry on the characters because jewelry would be really hard to render if it was a game. Uh, patterns are harder to render than plain clothes. So just all those things as far as even the idea that people are dressed drably comes into play because of the way that it would cost to render and the amount of time. Interesting. And it, it's just like, wow, I never really would have thought that. And the one thing that's that's interesting, too, and you guys brought this up on your podcast, was the whole idea of Jennifer Jason Lee's hair and how it changes. And I think if I were to look a little closer, I'd probably see that Jude Law's hair changes as well as we go through this. And just to see that at different steps in this uh, process that they have these different hairdos. And I would, I'm surprised that her hair gets more wavy as she seems to descend because I would think that would cost more to render. It's kind of like, you know, looking at Toy Story as opposed to Monster Zinc and just to see the, the hair effect on Sully is just so amazing. And I don't think they could have, I, I think it would have taken them five years to render that hair texture in Toy Story. And then by the time they got to Monsters, Inc., they had the technology to render that out. And this movie, that they actually spend time thinking about polygons and rendering and all these things, I was like, wow, there is so much thought put into this and put into those decisions to have that clunky dialogue. I feel like this movie outsmarts me at every turn. Uh, yeah, that's exactly how I think yeah. both of us feel about it. The, the thing we kept saying in our podcast was that it, every every time you think of something, you think, oh, well, that doesn't make sense or that doesn't work. Cronenberg is definitely two steps ahead of you, uh, because if you think about it for just five more seconds, you'll go, well, actually, no, that makes sense if this is a video game world, if this is a virtual world. Uh, but one thing that, that we, uh, if you, if you want to talk about this right now, it's, uh, I think it's, it's worth talking about is that is existence really about video games and does Cronenberg really know anything about video games and does it matter if he does or not? That's, that's something, that's a question that we asked. And, uh, and I want to kind of pose that question to you. Do you think watching this movie, does Cronenberg, do you think know anything about video games and video game culture? And does it really matter with what he's doing here? I feel, I called Pike a noob a little bit ago and I, I do not feel like I am part of video game culture. I feel like I'm on the fringes. So I might not be the, I'm not a hardcore gamer or anything. I don't use the term pwned in, in casual conversation, <laughs> you know. It's okay, we don't either. <laughs> I used to be into video games a lot when I was a kid. You know, we did an episode recently on joysticks. So I talked a lot about going to the arcade, those kind of things, moving into like the, you know, Commodore 128, those kind of games. 
I found myself addicted to Legend of Zelda when I was in college to the point where I really I was skipping classes to play Zelda rather than going to classes, which is a really good way to waste <laughs> your parents' money. <laughs> and so around that time, I was just like, I have to stop. So I would say I kind of stopped almost cold turkey like 94. Now I'll still occasionally play some things here and there. So from my point of view, from kind of being on the fringes of game culture, I don't think that, I, I don't know if Cronenberg is a gamer. It doesn't seem like he's any more of a gamer than I am. You know, I don't think that he's John Carpenter level gamer, you know, but um, I, I don't think that it matters. I think that he is able to use that to speak to so many other things. And I would say that the way that we can talk about uh, Philip K. Dick in a little bit here, but I think that he uses virtual reality and uses gaming and those kind of things in the same way that a Philip K. Dick is talking about those in terms of, well, you can almost go back to like uh, Naked Lunch or, or even, uh, again, Videodrome and just talk about those layers of reality. What's true? What's a hallucination? Where, you know, what does it mean to build your own reality? I think that he comes at it more from an existentialist point of view rather than a gamer point of view. And it seems to be as genuine to me one to the other. Jess actually has a really good allegory for why she thinks that that using games as a medium through which to talk about uh, existentialism and the things that he's trying to talk about um, doesn't work as well as it, it maybe could if he used something a lot plainer, like just a general like VR experience and didn't try to make comments about like the game industry and things like that. Uh, but my, my idea is that I kind of contend that existence is actually just an allegory for cinema, just, you know, kind of his his idea of saying, well, you know, video games are kind of like movies. It's like a world within a world. And, you know, he's even said as much in in, uh, in interviews and things. Um, but, you know, there's a few things that we kind of credence to this and that's you know that allegra mentions that porting into the game itself uh, when they finally get into existence comes with their own kind of unique transitions and she says you can get jagged brutal cuts slow fades shimmering little morphs and she's talking about a filmic element not one that we really talk about in games she's talking about editing she's talking about film transitions that's cinema um you know, she she even challenges this logic that they're going to to kill her and and get however many millions of dollars or a million dollars uh, for her dead body. Um, and she asks if he's ever even been to the movies, you know, because that doesn't make sense. If she's dead, she's dead. And and uh, why would they pay a cool million for her 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 fucking disgusting rotting corpse or whatever it is that she says. Um, but yeah, and like different different ideas about even film criticism. You know, Allegra's criticizing her own game once once they get in it, knocking like Darcy Nader's characterization as well as the kind of hackneyed and transparent way that her and Pykel's characters are compelled to a sexual encounter to kind of increase that the tension of the next game sequence. Um, and that's again a cinematic idea that's admit, admittedly been co-opted by video games. Uh, since they've become more narrative focused and narrative driven. So to me, it, it seems as though uh, this movie is actually more about filmmaking than it is about gaming, if that makes sense. I guess my big issue with gaming in the movie is the fact that what, what year was this? 1999. 99. I feel like, I feel like in 99 in terms of gaming, um, uh, looking ahead in the future, and and thinking that 
we would still that virtual reality would be used primarily for some sort of competitive gameplay is really naive. I feel like it feels very naive to think that. And that's that's my big um, my big feeling with this where I get frustrated about the gaming aspect is that is that virtual reality is and it works so much better too thematically in this movie is it's about experience. It's about experiencing things. That's where virtual reality is going to go. It's going to go to people, um, you know, getting to walk around in a country that they've never been to before or getting to ride a ride that they have never been able to ride or something like that. And the whole movie is about competition it's about she even talks about how she can't play the game unless unless she has someone else to to play it with that she's just a tourist unless someone else is there to compete against and at the end it's this whole thing about i did i win did i win and i don't know there's something very um it it feels it shows its age i guess in that moment in in this idea that the future of virtual reality gaming, that we would go so far that there's texture, that you can touch things, um, but we would still care about whether or not we were winning or losing a game, feels it feels very wrong to me. It feels off. Well, saying that it's dated, too, is interesting because I feel like Star Trek even understood the concept of, right, of the virtu- yeah, virtual reality being more experiential than, than competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were using that as far back as 1974 when they introduced the concept of the holodeck in the animated in Star Trek, the animated series before it became a recurring element in the next generation. Uh, and that's exactly it. The holodeck is about experience. It's not about competition. And I, I feel like that there's also like there, there's a it's very strange that there's a level of importance placed on the internal narrative of the game at all. However, Allegra wins in the middle of the climax, and I'm getting way ahead, but she she wins the game, so to speak, in the middle of the climax by, of course, killing Jude Law and Ian Holmes's characters. And then, you know, the whole thing about the realist underground and the uprising. And if that narrative is so important, then where's the denouement? You know, it's it's at this point that I don't know if Cronenberg is commenting on the artifice of movies or if he's criticizing game narratives. And I think that that's that's kind of a play that I don't think gets enough uh, said about it. It just shows, I, like I said, I feel like it shows its age a little bit in terms of gaming um, because because now games really are becoming about stories, so much so. And we're always going to have Halos. We're always going to have uh, first-person shooters and and we're going to have war games and that will always be competition. But I think the the major pull of games right now is to tell stories and to immerse people into these storytelling worlds and eventually we're going to get to live them out. We're going to just be experiencing them. And that's where I feel like it feels, like I said, dated. It yeah. feels like they thought that games would still be about competition and and it doesn't have to be at all. Yeah, the conflation in the movie of those two ideas feels a little incongruous. I and guess. I don't know what that has to do with with existentialism or, or any of that stuff, because I feel like authenticity and experience and reality and all of that is so much more important thematically to this movie anyways that the whole idea of comp- this movie doesn't have anything to say about like the rat race of human life like it's not talking about that so so i don't know why competition was a part of it except for the fact that it's a video game and it kind of feels like they were like so in video games you have to win right or lose <laughs> The whole idea of the experiential stuff, I think, is there, but they just kind of pass it by with that whole line of, do you think anybody actually physically skis anymore? I think there are people that will experience so many things like 
skiing and, and taking out the danger of breaking your legs or your arms by doing it virtually. And that's so that's kind of there. And I like the whole idea of the, you know, the ski boot that she carries around her game pod in and just skiing is this kind of weird theme and stuff. But the other thing, as far as the competition and stuff, I think that there is I won't say that it's necessarily the rat race, but I would say that one of the competitions of the film is that thing that we touched on earlier, which is that whole existence by this and transcendence by this. And it's this whole corporate intrigue thing. I think even more than the realist versus the, you know, the gamer kind of thing, I think that there's a real competition between these different gamer uh, groups that they have in these different companies. I would, uh, that to me seems like, and it, it kind of takes me back to uh, Videodrome with the fight between the cathode ray mission of Brian Oblivion and then Spectacular Optical. You know, one is more, you could say, pure. I don't know if Brian Oblivion's vision of the future with Videodrome is a pure idea or not, but it seems to, to me that he seems more, he seems to be more religious, whereas Spectacular Optical we make inexpensive glasses for the third world and missile guidance systems for NATO. It seems like they are more governmental, and it's that, that struggle between those two and also being a corporate struggle at the same time. And I can see those, you know, pilgrimage and, and antenna kind of being, even though they're all within this one conglomerated game when we really kind of pull this apart, and each level seems to have a sponsor almost, I would say that that struggle between these companies and you know we start off at a and kind of end up at a, 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 a early adopters meeting and you know the way that Eccleson is there at the board and really you know stressing who makes the game and all this stuff I would say that that to me seems more of that rat race kind of thing the whole idea of these uh, the, 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 the gamer uh, and the game companies um, fighting one another more than the people within them. That's interesting, and I, I do think that's fair. I, I, I guess having you bringing bring that up makes me kind of wish that the that the movie has more to say about the business of making these virtual worlds versus the art of making these virtual worlds. Because, you know, we, we have little little lines about whether or not Allegra would rather be in a room by herself making her games all day and no one ever gets to play them. You know, she doesn't she doesn't care if anybody gets to play her games. She just wants to make them. But then obviously she's getting funding from uh, Antenna Research, uh, you know, this giant corporation that is presumably in competition with other giant corporations trying to make similar things. Um, so I, I do think that that uh, that's an interesting point. I kind of just wish the movie had a little bit more to say about that particular dichotomy because those elements are there already. It's we just kind of need the commentary, I guess. When you do talk about the commentary on gaming and this kind of irreality that we have, I I think to me so much of that is really encapsulated by Gas and the way that Gas talks about Allegra Geller. You changed my life. What was your life like before? Before? Before it was changed by Allegra Geller. I operated a gas station. You still operate a gas station, don't you? Only on the most pathetic level of reality. In the virtual world, he can be anything that he wants, even if he is just a, a gas station attendant by day. Though to see, once they 
go into that next thing, and I would consider it the next level. I, this is what I would consider level three is the whole idea of them porting in to Allegro's game pod and going into that world where we do meet Darcy Nader and they're at the video game shop. And then that great commentary to see all those video game titles like Chinese Waiter and what there's one about auto accident. Hit by a car. Hit by, <laughs> Hit by a car, yes. So we've got a nice crash reference. Absolutely. But we do have chi- Chinese restaurant in there, which I was just like, okay, or Chinese Waiter. So it's a nice commentary on what we're going to get later on. And then we get yet another game system, or kind of a game system, but now the, the it's almost like you know going forward in technology, and you've gone from your 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 boom boxes to your Walkmans, you know. And here we have the game pod that you don't necessarily plug in with an umbi cord, but it goes right into your central nervous system, <laughs> which is pretty. That shot of that little thing just zooping right into uh, Allegra's back. It's just like, holy shit. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And that's a theme that like he, a, a motif maybe that comes up so often in his movies, this idea of there being some sort of an orifice on your body where things like go into it or get sucked into it. Like we've got Videodrome, of course, but also I haven't seen it, but in Rabid, there's, there's something with a screw. This was something I was reading online in one of the papers I was looking at. Um, and then Shivers, we've got like the slug creatures they go into people's bodies too he's he's got this thing and it's all of course going back to sex and sexuality and penetration and all of that but it has such a good horrible effect when it happens well the way that isn't it Rosanna Arquette gets penetrated in her wound and crash yes yes absolutely yeah, and I, I think that that, you know, he, he man of, you know, that, that fear of being penetrated, as, as you mentioned before with, uh, Ted Peichel, you know, that fear of being penetrated surgically or penetrated at all for that matter. I mean, I, I think we can take out, just throw the surgically right out the window. Um, but the fear of being penetrated at all is, is kind of that, that genophobic fear of sex type of thing. And I think that that leads right into, uh, like this kind of sapritophobic or like a fear of, of sexually transmitted diseases later on when we get this idea uh, of the game pods can become infected or you know can infect you as the player and in your and then your game port can be infected and then you are infected then you are diseased as the game pod is diseased um so i think i think it's interesting that like in this i i have a harder time calling existence a horror movie in the same way that like maybe the fly or the dead zone are horror movies there are certainly horror elements here no question um but i think that's interesting that that when cronenberg makes a horror film or puts horror elements into his movies he gives his characters actual phobias like real phobias things that they are actually afraid of and that's what he really digs into um and that's something that i think a lot of a lot of filmmakers a lot of horror filmmakers uh, don't do there's more of like a general sense of of fear or dread or you know uh, of, of what's coming down the road um as opposed to no this is if this is about horror then it's about phobia and it's about being afraid of a particular thing and that's what this character's uh, burden to bear is and that's that's ted peichel I love that whole idea of this new orifice and be it used for gaming or be it used sexually. I mean, the way that Pykel tongues Allegra's her hole and then the way that she licks her finger and shoves it into his hole later on. 
And that, just that whole role reversal of the genders, I mean, that makes this film to me so interesting just to see her in this aggressive role and him in this almost feminized role with his, you know, I, I don't want to be penetrated. I don't want to have this hole put into my body. And then when she is like, oh, look at your game pod. It's so excited. It really wants it. And just her, you know doing a Donald Trump and just grabbing him right in the pussy. Like, Whoa. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like rape allegory here, uh, I think, because, you know, she, she talks about how excited, you know, his game port is and how it wants action. And he turns right around and says, well, what about me, the owner of the game port? I don't want action. I don't care if my game port, so to speak, wants action. I don't. And I think that's, you know, they're, they're comment, they're directly commenting on, on consent. The way that Cronenberg is flipping these gender roles in this one, um, at least on the surface, I don't know how far we're going to dig into this and to see if this really goes through and through. But to me, at least on the surface, so often, I mean, so often Jennifer Jason Lee would be the Eva Marie Saint, where you grab her by the hand and you're pulling her along, you know, the top of, of Mount Rushmore, you know, just these, I mean, Eva Marie Saint wasn't an ineffectual female character in North by Northwest, but she wasn't necessarily as adventuresome as, as, uh, uh, Cary Grant was in there. So, uh, in any other movie, we would have Pykel as the expert, Pykel as the architect, and him explaining these things to the poor, simplistic woman, and her, you know, getting penetrated, and her being the one who's hesitant, and her experiencing this for the first time, and being like, what the fuck was that? But I love that we have twisted it around now, and which kind of twists it, kind of, to me, it kind of sticks a knife and twists into the whole idea of gamerism and this whole idea that we had in 1999 and that we still have in, 20, or in 2017 where it's like, oh, well, girls can pretend that they're gamers, but they're not really that into it and they're not, they're, their opinion doesn't matter at all. I mean, it's, it's almost prescient as far as how this speaks to like the Gamergate kind of thing yeah. so mm-hmm. many years before it ever happened. And just to say, like, no, uh, women are creative. Women can build these games. And to have her be the ultimate game architect, I thought was a really smart thing for Cronenberg to do in this case. Even as far as in as far back as 2012, I have some statistics here from the last time we did research on this. And the ratio of female to male gamers was 47 to 53 in the U.S. So, I mean, it. It's definitely an image that's not true, but definitely back in 99, even more so than today, of course, it was still like, you know, girls don't play games. And so they put a woman in the role of the game designer. And they also, like you said, they swap the gender roles in terms of like sexual drive that she's she's the one who because it is it's also all about sex. The whole movie is all about sex. And that's, of course, why I why I keep bringing up Freud in part. But um, but it is like she's obsessed with this game and she can't stop playing it and of course because of how the game looks and because you have to be penetrated to play it and all of these kind of things bring bring up the idea of sexuality and so we flip that around because it's the woman who typically in films and and literature and stuff we default on it's the guy who's obsessed with sex and the woman who doesn't want to who's the barrier um and they flipped it on this so it's nice it was ahead of its times in that sense Come on, Jessica. Don't girls just like to play Candy Crush? No, you're totally right. That's what I do. I play Candy Crush all day long. It's interesting to compare this to 
the matrix where you would think like having these uh, eventually two transgender directors directing this that maybe they would have flipped things on their head a little bit more as far as gender roles in the matrix which you know we'll talk about the matrix coming out you know two months ahead of this but just that whole idea of trinity versus neo and you know the whole idea of uh you know, Neo is the one, you know, very, very phallocentric there as far as the one mm-hmm. you know, not being being a one rather than a zero, which is, you know, the same as that that hole that uh, that that Trinity has that Neo doesn't have. And that kind of sets him apart, makes him a little bit more important. I put in air quotes and just this whole thing of like, it's weird because there you would think that there would be like Different, differing gender roles inside of that, and there are. There's like Switch is an interesting character to me. One of the one of the gang, but they don't really ever address Switch. And I've always been curious why Switch isn't uh, a, a, a better, you know, more more primary player in that. Like Cipher gets more time, Mouse gets more time. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, Dozer and 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 uh, Tank get more time than Switch does. And I just like, oh, I really want to know more about switch and then also switch being you know on and off and those kind of things one or zero so she kind of vacillates between those things as opposed to trinity who's got you know three things she'll never be one thing she's always marked with three and looking at sorry i'm kind of i'm kind of spinning off into the the ether with this one but thinking about the matrix the other day and just thinking about like uh, how women are basically distractions in that movie. Like the woman in red in the simulation, she is a distraction. And it's just like, wh- what is that trying to say to us? Why, why is that, uh, you know, why are, are women a distraction in this world? Why is it so horrible when, um, you know, when Neo gets his mouth covered up, you know, like that is, he goes from, having an open mouth to a forcibly closed mouth, these kind of things. Whereas Allegra Geller, I love her example to Ted when he's just like, aren't you worried about getting infected? And of course, I think he's not just talking about the game uh, whole uh, about the bioport, but also uh, I think there's definitely a, a vaginal connotation to this. Like, how can you have this open hole in your body? Aren't you worried about it getting infected? <laughs> and then her response of just like opening her mouth and being like, dumbass. I, I love that reaction. Her Je- Jennifer Jason Lee, she's always so fantastic, but in this, she just really brings that to the fore of how great of an actress she is. She is she is great. And I, you know, I think that it's it's how great her performance is that actually turns me off to her character in this. And you you mentioned it earlier, but she is very kind of off putting. And it's I've always struggled with her performance in this movie, perhaps because she plays the role so well. Ted Peichel mentions early on that the character of Allegra Geller seems shy. But she kind of comes off to me as like maybe coy and false or something, which may very well be intentional and and touches on something that, you know, I want to we have been talking about uh, about the artifice of this world, these game worlds and the layers of these game worlds. Uh, But Lee's got this quality to her performance where she's almost like speaking through her teeth while smirking simultaneously and kind of glaring through narrowed eyes the whole time where she's, she knows that she's on a different level than everybody else. Um, and it turns out that she's not, which, which is really kind of a, 
a very strong reversal to me at the end of the film when she comes out of it and you find out that she's not any better or worse than anybody else that she's been playing with. And in fact, Yevgeny Nourish uh, is the creator of this game and she's not the most important person in the room, but she just plays that, that, that role so well and plays that, uh, that, kind of coy, uh, I'm a little bit better than you so well that it, it almost, it puts me off to her. Like I, I don't like her. I'm not a fan of her character in this, but I think it's intentional that we're, we're supposed to feel that way. But while you were talking, Dustin, I was glancing at my notes on existentialism and it just kind of is perfect. Um, I don't think we've mentioned that existence is the German word for existence, but that's, I mean, of course, existentialism is all over this movie. And so one of the key things about existentialism is that existence precedes essence, right? So the most important thing is you're an individual, not a category or whatever you've been labeled as. Um, you're defined by your actions and you're responsible for them. So she's pl- what matters is that she acts as if she's the one who's in charge. She acts as if she's the one who's the most important person in the room. And it doesn't matter that she actually isn't. It's that whole existentialist concept it's just really it's clever how they wove all of that in there yeah there was a line that i read uh, while doing research on this the whole idea that gameplay is borderless and bodiless and they really kind of play into that whole well obviously the bodiless uh especially that shot that we were talking about earlier where we see their bodies back in the the ski chalet just out on the bed, you know, they don't look comfortable <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> no. when you rejoin them when the game is paused at one point. And the whole idea, so that's the, the bodiless and then the borderless. And I love that whole, the, the, uh, the horrible accents that I talked about. And again, how those are part of the game design and just that, you know, um, the, the line that Ian Holm gives later on in the movie was just like my accent. I could barely understand what I was saying and just, Oh, Don McKellar with that. I mean, he just, he sounds like he's hunting moose and squirrel. Just, it is so thick. He's laying it on so terribly thick. Just like, there are times where I'm just like, what did he just say? Because <laughs> it is just such a, a, a cartoon character Russian accent. And that definitely plays into what we've been saying about like the, the, the scenes, you know, what we, the whole thing that we started with, like our first impressions of the movie and, and how I could see the seams and that kind of stood out to me in a bad way. And then I came to realize that those seams were the point. And I think that the, the accents, the terrible accents are a really great example of that is, is that, you know, when Darcy Nader starts, I mean, Darcy Nader's, Irish accent, I think it's supposed to be, is so terrible that (laughs) that I'm not like I'm really not sure it's supposed to be an Irish accent, but I'm pretty sure it is. But that that's how bad it is, is that I'm not even sure. Um, But, yeah, that's you know, that's just one of those things that that kind of that creates the artificiality, the artifice of this world that helps enhance uh, how fake everything is in this world. And while, you know, some, especially first time watchers of this movie will watch this and, you know, start criticizing things and be like, oh, well, that's stilted and that accent's terrible and this looks fake and that looks fake. And then at the end of the movie, it's like, well, yeah, of course it does. Well, again, it's about existentialism. So it's about authenticity and inauthenticity and constantly playing with this notion of what is real and what is authentic and what isn't. And the absurd. And the absurd, right? I mean, this is totally the absurd. Um, and, and I think, uh, one of the things that's so great about this movie is how it ties into the body, how this idea of the absurd and the uncanny and authenticity and inauthenticity, how all of that ties into the body. Because, 
in all of Cronenberg's films, pretty much, um, at least all the ones I've seen, the body is an unreliable way to determine what's real and what's not real. And it's definitely unreliable in this movie. Um, the body does things that are unexpected, like when it sucks mini game pods into a hole in its back. Um, it does things that are unexpected. It, it does things that frighten the characters. Even their own bodies do things that frighten them. And and it, he just plays with this notion of reality with the body throughout the whole thing. Well, that whole idea, too, of freedom of choice and freedom of motion and that, that thing that you're talking about as far as existentialism and you are defined by what you do, but mm-hmm. there are times within the game that they can't do anything else where they are overtaken by these urges. And it seems to me that Pykele's the one that gets overtaken the most. He gets overtaken when he's putting his tongue in uh, Allegra's bioport. He gets overtaken when he is, uh, you know, when they're, well, they're both overtaken when they're trying to have a little bit of, of uh, sexual play, but when he is there at the Chinese restaurant and eating that stuff, and he gives that line about, you know, this is disgusting, but I can't help it. There are uh, so many moments where, you know, and uh, like where there's, it is, she's like that, that drug person I was talking about before, where it's like, I'll give into it. You know, just here it comes, here comes the moment, you know, just, just let it go, just go with it, just go with it, you know, and he's just the, experiencing this whole idea of the loss of control, and it's like, you know, it, to me, it kind of speaks to that whole idea of like Max Ren in, in uh, Videodrome, where Max, you know, you would think that he is this fully realized character, but he's constantly being manipulated by all these other characters. He's being manipulated by the guy at, at the cable station. He's being manipulated by Brian Oblivion. He's being manipulated by the people at Spectacular Optical to the point where they are literally programming him with these different tapes that they're sticking inside of his body. Just very much to me like those games that are going inside of Jude Law and um, Jennifer Jason Lee in this. And just that there is no free will. You know, there you can try you can pretend that you're in control of the game. She can pretend that she's the greatest game designer in the world, but at the end of the day, she's just another schmo. And and not to because you're talking about like their free will and stuff. I I'm really not crazy about Freud as a theorist, but I keep bringing him up in this because he's all over it. But that drive theory is is all over the place in this movie where we have the the death drive as well as the life drive so like they don't have control over what they're doing um they the motivation to have sex or the motivation to kill someone is equal throughout the whole movie both of these things and that's something that in the paper i was talking about by that uh dr loretis um uh, woman at the University of California. She she talks about how this movie deals with technological development and capitalist production, and both of those things are regularly associated with a process of creative destruction. And so this movie is constantly dealing with these binary this binary idea of creating and destroying of life and death throughout the whole movie. And it's just they don't have any control over it. They have to do these things. And also, I think speaking to, to Freud's drive and urges and, you know, urge versus free will and whether or not they have free will in this game. Um, I, I, I do think going back to like speaking specifically of games and game culture, 
Um, I think that there is a, it's a little bit incongruous, uh, because there's this blurring of the line between what we would call in our world PCs and NPCs or playable characters and non-playable characters. You know, we eventually learn in the movie that actual people who are playing in-game characters or what we would call PCs can get stuck in what Allegra calls a game loop. She uses this first to describe what happens to Darcy Nader, um, when he stops talking and just kind of stands there until you give him a correct line of game dialogue right um this is something that we expect of npcs not not you know characters that have actual people behind them and even allegra does it at one point where she mm-hmm. where she loses all ability to speak to ted peichel until he gives her the right piece of game dialogue and then she can move on to the next line and i think that that the blurring of the line absolutely serves the theme and absolutely serves that theory of the drive and urges and speaks to free will but at the same time is is, is somewhat incongruous with this being a game and the idea of playable characters versus non-playable characters in that game world. That moment drives me so crazy. <laughs> it is. And if you can't tell, we're if you can't tell, we're gamers. <laughs> we play video games and that's that's where some of this frustration comes from and whether or not it's like it's it's a uh, uh, critically viable, we still kind of feel it watching this. Right. Yeah, I that moment specifically though is the one that that makes me because I feel like I understand the logic of the movie and then that one moment where she becomes an NPC where she repeats her line, I I look at that and go the movie is is signaling to me that she's not real, which I mean, that's just another layer, I guess, that we have to deal with when we talk about this movie. But, oh, God, it makes my brain hurt. It seems very superficial, but it, I, I, I think I even said this before. I feel like it would almost be better if they just didn't use the word game at all. If it was just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. an experience or just that, they, you know, they didn't call them game pods. It wasn't about video game, you know, creator or anything like that. It was just kind of general virtual reality experience or something. I know that sounds so superficial and nitpicky, but yeah, I don't know. Like it's it's that word that bothers me, I guess. I saw you make contact, Larry Ashen, with a guy in the assembly line say to you. You believe the game version of your pod? Sick. So unconvincing. I mean, (laughs) using mutated animal organs and nervous systems as game pod parts is certainly feasible, but everything here is so dirty. Absurd. Grotesque. I saw you make contact, Larry Ashen. What did the guy in the assembly line say to you? He told me where to have lunch. I can see where you're coming from with her being this NPC, but at the same time, I've kind of, I come at it as far as her thinking that she's so in charge of the game. Because she tells Pykel at one point, repeat what you said and use the person's name, you know, in order to get Darcy Nader to respond. So there are times where I think that she's doing that to Pykel as if this is a power play on her part, repeating the line, trying to get Pykel to almost pay attention or to give her a better response for stuff. So I can kind of see both sides of that. And I can see where either side kind of is frustrating because it's like, well, she should know that he's a real 
person that he's playing in this game, but to me, sometimes it feels like she's treating him like he's he's an NPC and that she just needs to get this information from him. That being intentional on her part also plays into her feeling that she's better than him, that she's, you know, on a different level than him because she is this the creator of this world, even though she isn't. And that's a, right. that's another thing that I think is interesting about this on a first time watch through you watch it and you're like, how does she know so little about the game that she made and come to find out that she didn't actually make the game. There were moments in early gaming and I'm not going back to, you know, Chinese checkers or anything, but I'm in early video gaming where I would get so frustrated. I could never do those games where you had to say those exact right words in order to unlock something. Oh, yes. That whole concept of get lamp, (laughs) I could never get lamp. Because to me, get lamp doesn't make any sense grammatically. You know, I grab the lamp, I take the lamp, I do all these things to the lamp, but I never get lamp. And so I was kind of feeling that frustration at times when they would talk about, like, you have to say this thing to this character in order to get them to respond. It kind of feels like when you go into town in Zelda and you go up to a certain character and they just say the same thing over and over again. You're like, you know, oh, are you going to be at the big ball tonight? And it's just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> guess, is, is yes. Is there something I'm missing here? Is there, is there a clock that I need to look at? And just those putting those pieces together. I don't know if I just need things handed to me or what, but those moments I was just like, oh, so that's what that that really reminded me of as yeah. far as that saying those right combination of words to get what you want. But at, at the same time, it's like, it, you know, I, I remember in Cronenberg's commentary where he was talking about, you know, there are moments where in life you don't say the right words and so you miss out on an opportunity. And it's like, okay, taking that that idea into the real world for him, I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of see where you're coming from, where you want to have those right words at all at all moments so that you get what you want. But I feel like even, you know, when I was talking about how like competition shows, it shows the the movie's age and or maybe naivety or whatever in terms of gaming, I feel like saying the right line kind of is the same thing too. Because in the future of gaming, I mean, the direction that we're headed now, we're getting closer and closer to these limitless possibilities of, of what you can do. I mean, just, just, you know, where we are right now, typically when you, when you talk to an NPC or something in a game, you, it, it's more about what what do you want to say? What would your character say? And you have a list of many, many, many choices. Um, and and I'm sure eventually the where we would be storytelling narrative wise, I just feel like they didn't think far ahead enough in how narrative is going to change in video games. They were thinking very naively again in how how narrative is because by the time we're at the point technology wise of being able to touch things in a video game we will definitely be at the point narrative wise that what you want to say is what happens in the game i I like that you're thinking ahead when it comes to this stuff i just feel like that's another one of those things that shows that maybe they weren't thinking far enough but again did they need to? Probably not, because this isn't really about video games. So. Exactly. At, at the end of the day, this isn't really about <laughs> video games. It doesn't really matter. These are, these are nitpicks of people who play too many video games and then see video games represented in a way that goes against our expectation, and then we we fight it. <laughs> I am all about the minutia and all about these crazy like little details and those kind of things, so I can really understand where you're coming from, because there were things that I was seeing in the movie that I, were just 
they weren't necessarily driving me crazy, but they were just like these little red flags that would go up here and there. So things like, um, you know, I, I keep bringing up Videodrome, and I bring that up because there are so many thematic uh, uh, similarities between, you know, the whole idea of the reality. When does Max Ren start hallucinating? When is that first hallucination? Is it as soon as he sees the Videodrome signal? Is it when his tape sighs at him at one point? You know, where's that first moment? And I know Cronenberg has actually, you know, said that that they are spiritually linked, and there are these neat little moments in existence and within Videodrome that really speak to each other. And I just want to like put those out there as almost like you know, footnotes so that somebody else can do the research and, and come up with the research paper and come up with all of the, the ties here. One of them is the whole idea of where Allegra is shot and that she's got this hole in her shoulder. And the way that Ted digs the tooth out of her shoulder, it's totally exactly where Nikki Brandt has been cut in uh, Videodrome when she's like... Take out your Swiss Army knife and cut me here just just a little. And Ted Peichel has a has a Swiss Army knife as well. Swiss Army <laughs> knife, yes. And he's doing the cutting there. Yeah, uh, they're definitely linked. I, I feel like this, um, you know, those two films have the strongest connection. But I do feel like there's kind of an unofficial trilogy of, of, let's say, flesh and technology. And I think you throw the fly in there and those are kind of the, the three that make up this Cronenberg's flesh and technology trilogy. And I, I think that all three of those films complement each other in in really interesting ways, but especially Existence and Videodrome. Well, the one that really got me was rewatching Videodrome the other day and seeing when they put that device onto Max Ren's head, the one that records his hallucinations, and you get that shot of him, you know, his head in the foreground, and then uh, the guy from Spectacular Optical kind of in the background and he's framed in a doorway, and behind his head, there's a big sign. You know, they're in the spectacular optical uh, shop, and in the back room, there's a big poster that says "Ski and See Sunglass Special." What that is doing in the back room, where nobody's going to see that poster, is interesting. Why are they tying skiing with looking, and especially in a movie that is so about? your eyes and looking and your, your your perception of reality. And I know that this is crazy talk, but it almost feels like he's speaking to existence, you know, 20 years in the future, <laughs> like with the whole ski thing. It, it it is it is kind of strange. It almost makes you wonder if there's like a if there's like almost like you know the the Pixar the Pixar universe where right. all of the movies have like little hints and mm. nods to other movies and maybe maybe there's a a Cronenberg universe where all of these movies are connected. Uh, if not you know narratively, then it's certainly thematically. Yeah, they all go to the same ski chalet. Right, exactly. <laughs> Even during the summer, when you can hear the <laughs> hear the uh, the crickets and the cicadas in the distance, that's that, that, that's a weird moment for me when Ted Ted's like, "What if someone wants to ski?" And and I'm like, "In the summer." Yeah, and, and despite the fact that she says no one no one actually skis anymore, which is you know a funny line that I like a lot. Um, the fact that there it's the summer is pretty telling. But then maybe like we're so far in the future and he's so far away from skiing that he doesn't realize it has to be winter to ski. See, and there you have it. David Cronenberg, two steps ahead of us again. <laughs> Before we take a break, I just wanted to go through and talk about those layers that we talked about earlier. So I would agree with you, Jessica, that maybe the real world, like the world that we inhabit, 
if it is a real world, that us as movie viewers, maybe we're, say, layer zero. Layer one takes place uh, with Yvonne Nourish as the game designer back in the church with Sarah Polly, who is like one of the only people that doesn't have a game avatar. So that's level one, let's say. For me, level two is the church where Christopher Eccleson is at. That's my level two. My level three is when they port into Existence. And then my level four is when they port into the mini game pod um, world. And I don't know if there's any other levels other than that, but then I'm curious to get, I think Dustin, you said to you, there's maybe two, if only one. So I'm curious what your levels are with this. Uh, I, I guess I, I guess I miss, miss, mistook what you were saying about the levels. Uh, I do agree that if reality is level zero, uh, then level one would be inside transcendence and then level two would be inside existence and then, uh, level three, let's see. Level three, I don't know that there's – you say that when they put the pods in their backs, I don't think they actually go into another level of the game at that point. I think that they're just downloading identities from those little game pods so that they can function in this new world. Uh, and there is a, a hard cut between the scene uh, when he's uh, holding – uh, Allegra Geller's breast, and then he's suddenly in the uh, in the breeding pools area, the where trout the, farm. the trout farm, and he's and he's holding he's holding that amphibian. I think that's just a jump cut. Uh, and, and the first time I saw it, I thought it was him jumping into the next level of reality, but I think that's just a jump cut within the same world because they do end up going back to that shop where they see Darcy Nader, and there's never any indication that they've gone into or back out of. More importantly. Um, a reality created by that little pod. I think that pod was just information that they needed for this level of the game. Right. But there are multiple signifiers on both sides telling us different things though. This is where we argue about this a lot because, because for one thing, her hair changes, her hair changes. And that's, that is a sign throughout the whole movie that we're in another level. It of the does, game. but it changes back. It changed. It does not change back. It changes to straight and up. We have we don't see this hairstyle at any other time in the game except for in the trout farm world, whatever level that is. Right. And then it goes back to crimpy, does it not? It goes back to crimpy when they go out into like the video game store level. And but when they're in the trout farm world, it's this like it's it's straight. It's straighter than it is any other time. I don't know about level one, what her hair looks like. But anyways, the point is, is that we have that clue that her hair changes. We have the jump cut clue, which makes think they've they've gone into another level. But then there's a clue that tells us that it's the same level. The gun that he puts together in the Chinese restaurant, when they talk to the game store owner, the game store owner is holding the gun and says that his dog brought it to him. And so that indicates that the game store owner level is the same level as the Chinese restaurant and trout trout farm level. But another clue that negates that is the posters, because we see a poster, like you mentioned, of the Chinese restaurant right. as though it's a game. <laughs> right. And so that makes us think that the Chinese restaurant trout farm level is a different level than the video game store level. So there are clues pointing both ways, and it is incredibly frustrating. There are things that move from inside or let's say deeper inside the game out to those outer levels and that whole idea of the 
the spores and the infected pod and all those things. And then that dog, that dog shouldn't be anywhere in the game. The dog does not have that that cerebral cap thing that's going on in our what we're calling level one. The dog shouldn't be in the game, but the dog is there throughout. And that gun is there in the church. The gun is there in the Chinese restaurant, and the gun is there in the uh, in the video game store. So the gun transcends all these things. The dog transcends all these things. The dog with its bone, I suppose you could say. And then there are other things, like just the way that even the guy that works at the video uh, game store, who's not Darcy Nader, but their other person that they know there, he ends up being one of the realists, and she, you know she ends up shooting him. And just the way that they they move, you know, as the the movie progresses, as the game progresses, it feels like these levels are just breaking down, and it's like they're, you know, thank God they're not doing that horrible, you know, movie cliche of running away from an explosion. <laughs> but it feels almost like that, like a slow motion explosion, as far as the way that these levels are just kind of collapsing around them. It, there is and she she even speaks the weird reality bleed through when you know especially when the when the disease comes back and infects her personal pod that has the only copy of existence on it um so yeah i think that that what you're saying there is definitely true but i also think that there is a uh, some kind of movie cliche going on in here and i think that Cronenberg is specifically commenting on the types of movies that break down in these particular ways and become so and become so convoluted that you can't follow them because here toward toward the end of the movie, there are so many twists and turns and backstabs and double crosses and double agents. And this guy is actually this guy working for this thing instead of this thing that you thought he was and you killed your contact. But this other guy made you kill your contact. All that stuff gets so convoluted that I just give up at some point and stop trying to figure out who's working for who, because I think think that's the point is that it is it is too convoluted well and then it all gets capped off with that line back in what we call layer one or level one where the one character even says towards the end it just got so confusing i couldn't figure it out exactly exactly i think the other thing that we're trying to do here the one that that i kind of you know i feel like this critic proof is i feel like it's a deconstruction because what What's happening here at the end is um, we're using something where I'm going to mess up the word probably, but mise-en-avine. And this term basically in film theory and literary theory is this idea where it's like it's defined as a, a reduplication of images or concepts referring to the textual whole. So in film, we see this as a film within a film. Or in this case, a game within a game within a game within a film. <laughs> um, but in in literature, we often look at this as the frame story, a story within a story, sometimes within a story. And in all of these cases, there's always that other layer that I talked about where things get really confusing, where you're also a person sitting there watching this so that or reading this. Um, so that adds this this other layer to all of these layers. And and again, we're going back to creation and destruction, or in this case, construction and deconstruction, because Mizana Beam, at, at some point after you've constructed so many levels of reality, um, what typically happens is that the mirroring of the text causes meaning to become unstable, that meaning sort of gets lost and there is no more meaning. And that leads to deconstruction. And what's really interesting is the same term, Mizana Beam, which is used to when we talk about a film within a film, like Inception or something, um, 
in literary theory and deconstructive literary theory, the term mise-en-abîme is used to talk about the intertextual nature of language. So that's how language can never really touch reality because um, uh, if you're getting really crazy like Sassur and stuff where you talk about uh, the 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 signifiers and that um, an idea is only a fixed sound and that sound is only the sign of an idea, like nothing's reality. A chair is only a chair because it's not a cat, like everything referring to something else. So this same term is used to talk about how language can't reach reality. And it's just really cool that that's like that we're talking about a movie where you never know what reality is. I think it goes back to deconstructing it. We're supposed to be we're supposed to lose meaning at the end. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking of that whole you know, the, the mirror phase of, uh, like, Lacanian psychology and, like, trying to come up with words for these concepts. And, you know, and then I was even thinking of a little bit of, of Pontypool. And when we discussed that movie, just the way that language can be infected and the way that language, you know, you, you try to wrangle it and you try to be its master. And are you its master or is it yours? And there's so this is one of those movies where you could you could definitely take a graduate level course on this movie. Um, but there every time you think of something, you think of another theorist or theory that goes with it. Like they refer to the pods as slaves. And so I'm immediately going, oh, OK, master slave dialectic. Like we're going to start talking about that. Right. And I'm I didn't do the research for it, so I won't pretend like I did. But. But I'm sure there is a, a way to twist that into here somehow. Well, and the whole idea, too, are you the master of the pod or is the pod the master of you? The whole idea that it runs off of your energy, which is an interesting idea, too, because that whole idea, you know, Michael's asking, where do you put the batteries? And, you know, we'll talk about this more in the second half of the show, but the idea of humans being the batteries, I mean, that's what powers the Matrix, folks. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Ernest Mateus, author of The Cinema of David Cronenberg, From Baron of Blood to Cultural Hero. How did you originally come to film and your enjoyment of film? Through David Cronenberg, actually. <laughs> there's a, here's a little anecdote. One day when I was a teenager, um, there was only there's only one public broadcaster. There used to be only one public broadcaster in Belgium, and they um, their crews went on strike. So they they screened films in the uh, in the evenings just to keep the audience happy. And one of them was Videodrome. And I was probably way too young to uh, to probably understand that film, but I. I, I watched it nonetheless. The next day I went to the, we still had video stores back in the day, uh, and I rented uh, the dead zone, and I also saw a poster for scanners in the, in the wind, in the shop window, and I, I got hooked ever since. And then it sort of gradually moved me into college, university, and then, you know, you get to the, 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 the regulars, Eraserhead, Stranger Than Paradise, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and that sort of rolled me into cult cinema. When did the Cultographies book series come about? Uh, it started in 2005. Uh, it was 2007 by the time the first book came out. But it started in 2005. How did that series come to be? Because it is one of the most valuable uh, book series that is out there. I mean, I, I have uh, tried my best to collect every single one of those, and, and more than that, read every one of those. It was a um, combination between uh, my, my co-editor, Jamie Sexton, 
uh, and me. And then um, Joram Allen, the editor of um, of Wolf, what was then Wallflower, Wallflower Press, which is now an imprint of Columbia University Press. Um, but he was very interested in it. Uh, there was also an involvement of uh, Michael Coven, who was then a colleague of mine at the University of Aberyst, and, and Jamie was at the University of Aberystwyth as well. So uh, you, you can blame the University of Aberystwyth in Wales for that. Wallflower is now an imprint of Columbia, and uh, you still are producing those, correct? Yes, there's about four or five that are still coming out, yes. So David Cronenberg, it sounds like he was kind of your first love. And then was it just a, an easy decision for you to decide to write an entire book about Cronenberg? The, the, the decision was easy, for sure. Uh, the work itself, n- not so easy. <laughs> if the work itself was easy, we'd all be doing it. But the chapter on existence was one of the most fun to write. Uh, because I saw it so much as a sequel to, um, uh, to Videodrome. Well, I'm curious, when did you start your research on Cronenberg to come up with the book? 1993, I believe. At the time, I was uh, finishing my uh, my master's in uh, um, film studies, and uh, we, we needed to come up with a thesis topic, and I had done something else before, and I, I thought, well, you know what, I've been, always been interested in, in, uh, in David Cronenberg, and Naked Lunch was the latest film that I had seen at that point, and it just blew me away. And um, I decided to write him a letter. I found this book that had all, uh, you know, a sort of directory of um, where you can call someone's agent. So I wrote a letter. And surprisingly, I got a letter back from Sandra Tucker, who was at the time Cronenberg's production assistant, I believe. But I, I, I could be wrong about that. And they said, "Well, we have a, we we just have a new book out that's called Cronenberg on Cronenberg. You you must have you must have seen this book. It's edited by Chris Rodley. It's a brilliant book because Cronenberg is so eloquently explicit about what his films mean. So I read the book and I thought, okay, well, uh, uh, maybe I should just plagiarize this and and then put it put it in my thesis and pretend it's mine. I, in the end, I did a little bit more than that, and I came across uh, I, I remembered Videodrome and um, the Dead Zone." So I wrote about that, and that's when my research started. That was 15 years between when you first started your research and when the book came out. Yeah, it's it's sort of gone up and down in in in, in the years in between because you know uh, people have day jobs and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it 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 kept me fascinated, and then I completed my PhD on David Cronenberg in 2000, and then uh, then I was asked to write a book on it. So where did you start? Did you start chronologically or did you start from where your first loves were? The book is constructed chronologically because that seemed to be the the, the, the structure of uh, uh, the publication. Uh, but I would start with Videodrome and then the dead and then move to the fly and then move back to um, to the earlier films, uh, Rabbit and Shivers. Yeah, so Fast Company would be the last one. <laughs> I, that that was my next question. I was like, as somebody who has a PhD in Cronenberg, where do you put Fast Company? I now cherish it. I've actually rewatched it recently. Uh, the only reason I bought the DVD of Fast Company, uh, because the film was never really released anywhere, uh, except in uh, a couple of theaters in North America, if any. But the, re- the only reason I bought the DVD was because it had a Stereo and Crimes of the Future on it. And those were the films I was really interested in. And if you link those films to Shivers and Rabbit, and then you move to Video Drone, then it all makes sense, right? Fast Company was sort of, 
it, it was the main feature on the DVD, but it was sort of an addition in, in my sense to Cronenberg's oeuvre. But then when you look at the film closely, especially at the credits, it's not a it's not a good film by any means. Um, it's the it's the first film he Cronenberg uh, filmed outside outside Ontario, uh, uh, sorry, uh, and Quebec. But it's not a good film by any means. But it brings together for the first time most of the crew that Cronenberg will keep working with until well until now actually. Except for except for Howard Shore, I, I think Howard Shore only came aboard on uh, the Brood. How do you see that relationship between Shore's music and Cronenberg's images? It fascinates me. You know why? Because uh, he first does The Brood, which is a normal horror film score, like the type you would find in a Brian De Palma film. And then um, Scanners is a little bit more electronic. Videodrome is completely electronic. And then we skip Michael Kamen for uh, for The Dead Zone, which is also a good score, by the way. And then you get you get the really symphonic melodrama of uh, the fly, which really turns that film around, in my in my opinion. And the same for the uh, Dead Ringers. And then uh, after that, he goes on to Silence of the Lambs, and then he becomes this uh, one of the most celebrated celebrated music composers um, for film in in history, right? When when people bring up Cronenberg, they bring up the terms body horror a lot. And they bring up the whole idea of technology. I mean, even going back to you know our discussion a little bit of, of Fast Company and before that. And it seems to me that so much of that does culminate, or maybe not culminate, but comes to a head at least, in existence. It was his first original screenplay, Cronenberg's original screenplay, since Videodrome. All the other ones, The Dead Zone, The Fly, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, and Butterfly – uh, were all adapted from uh, from already existing material. So here we have Cronenberg returning to his own original material, and that's why I make that connection with uh, with Videodrome. And you've got all those elements that you just mentioned: body horror, relationship between body and technology, uh, isolation, alienation. It's all in there, and that's why I find it such a, a fascinating film. It's also the first film that he ever used digital effects in, which for a horror film director is quite a big step because you know that every, every horror fan wants creature effects or uh, visceral effects. And we all know that a digital effect doesn't look like a real penetration of the, bo- of a body. And, and when you talk about body horror, that seems to be an important point. And this is the first time he ever used it. Uh, and only in a very, a very few seconds, uh, you see that little insect on, um, on the gas station. And that's the only time he uses it because he knows very well that what his audience wants and what he wants to is something that sort of feels like it it sort of punches you, sort of penetrates your body, hence body horror. The name of your book is uh, The Cinema of David Cronenberg, From Baron of Blood to Cultural Hero. When is there a particular moment when he makes that transition from, quote unquote, Baron of Blood to Cultural Hero? Dead Ringers. That would be that would be the one. Cronenberg. He stars actually as an avant-garde filmmaker. Then he moves to um, uh, body horror, which he kind of turns into an art form, if 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 you want. And I would definitely defend that point. Shivers, Rabbit, The Brood. Um, we'll, we'll leave out Fast Company. 
um, uh, scanners, video drone, definitely the dead zone. That was a wave where everybody was doing Stephen King adaptations. Then the fly, it all, it, it explodes all over the screen. I mean, uh, uh, 60 minutes of the fly is just a body changing into a fly. And it, and it does it in a really good way. Then with Dead Ringers, it becomes a bit more artistic. And Naked Lunch definitely does that because he starts taking on more literary um, references. And you see the interviews as uh, the interviews that he gives as well. It becomes a bit more literary. It's no longer Frankenstein. It's more Samuel Beckwith or, or, or Heidegger or William Burroughs. So it, it, it takes a shift there. Then with M. Butterfly, I think he will went a little bit too far. Crash, you got um, Ballard uh, as a literary reference. And then with Existence, there's a slight return, if that's my opinion at least, if there's a slight return back to the body, to the body horror, just to, in my, in my opinion, to show his fans, look, I'm still with you. I can still do this stuff. I can still do the gruesome stuff. I can still put uh, a pluck into someone's spine and make it look gross. Uh, and at the same time, keep the literary references because Samuel Beckett and Heidegger and all were mentioned in the, in the reception of the film. So that, that's sort of the tra- trajectory that I, that I saw him take. Existence itself, I mean, just the title leads us into existentialism. And I'm curious how you see him playing with existentialism and some of the existentialist philosophers with the film. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not very much of an expert on existentialism as a, as a philosophy. But what I do see is that if you look at the, the literary legacy that Cronenberg pulls from, there is existentialism there. Um, you see, you see Heidegger, you see Sartre, you see Samuel Beckett. Uh, and, and it's all about we live our life in the moment. And also there is no future. And, and I think that's an important part in most of the Cronenberg films. I mean, his protagonists almost never survive at, at the end of the film. They, they all die. And you see it in the Videodrome and you see that in the, in, in, in the fly and you see that in the dead zone. They, they all die. And, there is, there is, there, it's not even that there's no bleak future. There is no future at all. It's, it's, it's as if they say, the characters say, uh, we don't need to survive this. We have something that our body goes through and then that's it. And, 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 and I guess that's my interpretation of existentialism. Why do you think it was that, was it just the end of the century kind of thing that brought us uh, Existence, The Matrix, and The Thirteenth Floor all together within a, just a few month period. I don't know. What do you think? I, I wondered about it. I actually wrote a, a, a review. I was I, I was a reviewer for a short while, and I wrote a double review on The Matrix and, and uh, Existence, in, in which I asked that question, but uh, um, I never came up with an answer. <laughs> but you know what? We, we get those anxieties. We, uh, audiences, film, film viewers, we get those anxieties every, every once in a while. Um, AI was another film of the time, if I remember correctly, uh, which was all about, uh, you had the dot com boom and people were thinking, where, where, where is this going? I, I thought Existence was actually uh, about video games as well. Existence was actually the film that stayed more real to those anxieties than any of those other films. Well, yeah, definitely more than the Matrix, which ended up, you know, kind of t- 
turning into more of a shoot 'em up uh, action film. Exactly. Yes. In the first one, the first Matrix was okay because it, it posed those important questions about alternative realities when people were getting used to their cell phones, getting used to internet, getting used to email. Um, Existence dealt with that. I, I I feel in a in a more real way, and 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 the um, the image of the that that fleshy part being pushed into a is it Jude Law or Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, um, spine is is actually for me much more real than what The Matrix or any of the other movies came up with. It's interesting the way that you pair uh, existence with Spider in the chapter about it, and how you kind of go back and forth between between the two films. I love I love Spider. I think it's, it's I think it's a brilliant film. The the, the way I, I set up the chapters was after a while I I, I did I, I realized that you know Shivers and Rabbit go together, the Blue and Scanners go together, Video Dome and the Dead Zone go together, um, etc. etc. And then. I, I, and then you look at the opening of uh, Spider and Existence, and you see these opening images, and you hear the elegiac um, music, and you feel that there are two characters who are really, really, really into themselves, really introvert. And I, and I took it from there. Spider is much more of an intimate movie than Existence. But when you look at Existence in detail, it's quite an intimate movie as well. If you take out the uh, the action scenes, it's interesting with uh, Cronenberg. It seems like he uses, as you said, the same composer, the same crew, all of these same people behind the screen. But then when I try to think of people that he uses in front of the screen on a regular basis, there aren't a whole lot of names that come to mind. They always look like Cronenberg. <laughs> the male protagonists, they they always look like Cronenberg. We've got Viggo Mortensen, uh, James Woods, Christopher Walken, uh, uh, Goldblum. If if you put those guys next to each other and you put them in a photo collage and then you put a, a, a picture of Cronenberg next to them, they all look like him. Well, I like that he kind of flipped the tables with Existence by making the, I would say, Jennifer Jason Lee is the protagonist of that film. That's that's true, actually, um, and it's it's uh, huh. and and that's does she look like him? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. No, no, <laughs> but she's much prettier. But yeah, other than Viggo Mortensen, I mean, it's he didn't seem to return to the same leading man um, very often. No, not really. If you look at the uh, background actors, so you've got Nicholas Campbell who played in six films, and you've got a couple of others. Uh, um, who've played in a, a number of films, but no, it, the, the loyalty is the, the loyalty or the family, if you would call it that, is more to the crew than to the actors. In, in a way, then you could compare Cronenberg to the way Hitchcock dealt with actresses, in that they're they're just there to deliver the material. When you look at the reviews of uh, of, the, of David Cronenberg's films. He's always credited for the body horror, of course, the creature effects, and he's been very successful in in uh, in getting the best uh, crew in that respect. And then the good editing, the straight cinematography, and then the the the, the acting is often described as a uh, wooden. And I think the, he actually designs it that way. Viggo Mortensen made a difference to that. Though. He he brought to um, history of violence. And the Eastern Promise is something that Cronenberg hadn't expected, and Cronenberg respects him for that. Uh, but he's one of the he's one of the exceptions. 
you could argue about wouldn't uh, acting when it comes to existence just because of it taking place within uh, a, a simulation for, well, it could be 100% of the film or 95% of the film. Absolutely. And, and Jude Law does a, does a great job, right? Uh, and so does Jennifer Jason Lee. And, and James Woods does a great job. And so does uh, Jeff Goldblum in, in The Fly. Because they, they deliver what the director asks them to do, which is sit here, have all this makeup on you, and then uh, get some stuff inside your body. Um, and 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 then they do that brilliantly. Um, it's not going to win you a, an Academy Award. They know that. Um, Jeremy Irons perhaps delivered a little bit more than that but even 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 his double performance as impressive as it is in in, in dead rainers was essentially david kronberg saying now you do this now you stand there now you do this now you stand there we talked a little bit about um you coming up in in belgium when did you emigrate to canada 11 years ago and when you got to canada i mean the the birthplace of Cronenberg and such an important part of his cinema. What was your impression as far as how is he held in uh, by Canadians as far as uh, being a cultural icon? Not at all. I was surprised by that, actually. Um, and how it, it's changed a little bit in the last 10 years, I think. Um, but I was surprised that David Cronenberg wasn't held in as high a regard as I thought he would have been. Uh, in uh, in Canada, um, it, yeah, it, it was a real it was a real uh, eye opener. I remember walking on the UBC campus, uh, talking to my new colleagues, and say and and they asked me, so what do you study? And I said that David Cronenberg. Oh, is that the guy who did the brood? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they didn't like that at all. <laughs> you would think the one place where they would be accepting of Cronenberg. Well, I, I know the I know the brood is a, is a controversial film for for many reasons. But uh, I, I wasn't expecting that. I'm really curious how you went from, you know, Cronenberg and, and cultographies and all of these things into um, a project about Lord of the Rings. Uh, you can blame Wales again for that. I, I, I was never a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I, I don't hold... All right, you, you should probably edit this out, but I don't hold fantasy in very high regard. Um, I, I, I don't think it's visceral enough. I, it, it, it's anyway. It, that's that's just me. Uh, but my brother was a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings books when they uh, when they were published in, in 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 Dutch in the 1980s, I believe it was. Kept going on and on and on and on about how fantastic this project was going to be and i was a fan of peter jackson because i think i thought that bad taste was a really really good film uh, and so was brain dead um, and uh, what, what's the, what's the one called with the with the two girls who, who killed their uh, oh heavenly uh, creatures heavenly creatures sorry Evan. so when i heard that he was doing that film project uh, with a couple of colleagues at uh, at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth, I designed a project uh, where we would uh, just write to uh, ask people, tell us what you think this film is going to be. It was a big project, um, and and I was also a fan of the uh, of New Line Cinema because of um, Nightmare on Elm Street and and other horror film productions. So I thought, okay, this might might be actually something. So we designed a huge survey, and uh, and we went from there. Looking at the cultographies bibliography, Donnie Darko is probably the most recent of the films that have been covered in there. 
Do you think that there are films that have come out since then that maybe in 20 years you're going to think this is a cult film? Maybe you can't tell at the moment, but you know, it, it has those markings. It is the most recent. I hadn't realized that. The Room would be one. Um, when you talk about the uh, so bad as good category, Primer would be another one. Nightcrawler. So when we talk about a very recent one, right? Nightcrawler would be the one. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about the films that I would screen in class as part of the cult cinema course that are more recent than Donnie Darko. Well, you've got the documentary about Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky's June, but I guess that doesn't really count. So yeah, yeah, Nightcrawler would be the one. Well, speaking of Jodorowsky, you've got a book on Holy Mountain coming out from uh, from the cultography series. I am really excited to see that. It's it's it. I just read the manuscript. It's really good. And I was happy to see that Stranger Than Paradise is getting some love as well. Yes, and I just read that, that manuscript as well. And the chapter and, and you you've, you know Stranger Than Paradise, right? Music plays an important part in in that film, and the chapters on music are exceptionally good. They're, they're really good. And this is written by Jamie Saxon, who's a co-editor of the cultography series, and he really knows what he's talking about. Yeah, the one woman's line about um, uh, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins still resonates today. I really hate that kind of music. It's Screaming Jay Hawkins, and he's a wild man, so bug off. I mean, I think that's where I first heard Screaming Jay Hawkins. The same with me. And it was one of those films that I was introduced to um, after, through Cronenberg, you, you, I started attending, um, um, they didn't even call it cult back in the day, um, but, you know, uh, underground um, or art cinema or art house uh, uh, screenings. And uh, uh, Stranger Than Paradise was one of, one of the ones on there, together with Eraserhead. That's a double bill that kills you, you know. <laughs> Soundscapes are so, so good. One of the things I always do in uh, in my cult cinema class is I do a double bill of eraser head and spinal tap. And I always start with spinal tap. And this is on a Monday morning. So the students are excited. Well, Monday morning, Monday morning excited. Um, and then we, we start spinal tap. And at, at the end of spinal tap, you've seen the film, right? Everybody's elated. Everybody's excited. And then you do eraser head. And their week is over. <laughs> hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have Scrape the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect, either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got stuff on like adaptations, we've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. 
couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album, Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us. And good night. All right. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reverence not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie-rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. talking about existence so we mentioned this a few times uh earlier in the conversation as far as this movie really taking a backseat to the matrix and now we talked about that we did an episode on the 13th floor and so i just want to go through and i think i did this exact same thing on the 13th floor episode the matrix was released wide in the u.s on march 31st 1999 Existence was released wide, though I put wide in quotation marks because I think this was more like your landmark theater, your art house theater, those kind of things. That was April 23rd, so just a few weeks later. And then 13th Floor didn't stand a chance. That was uh, May 28th, 1999, so that was uh, two months after The Matrix. And by that time, people are just like, how dare this movie come out and copy The Matrix? Not realizing... They were all in production at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're all in production at the same time. 
13th floor is actually based on a book from the 1950s. It was made into a movie called World of uh, on a Wire in the 1970s. So, yeah, so, uh, but, uh, Existence, uh, in the meantime, is, uh, an original screenplay. Though I do like the way, and we, I kind of mentioned this before, I like the way that this plays with Philip K. Dick and some of the ideas that Philip K. Dick had. And, you know, I, I, I was talking recently on another podcast that I've always wanted to do an article, uh, and I've just have the title so far, but I want to do an article called Feels Like Dick and talk about <laughs> movies. Movies that feel like they should have been written by Philip K. Dick or based on a Philip K. Dick story, but weren't. And this one is right there, and especially that he has the reference, Cronenberg has the reference to Perky Pats in this. Mm -hmm. And Perky Pat was, for folks who don't know, there was a, 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 Philip K. Dick was great at this. Philip K. Dick wrote a short story about Perky Pat, The Days of Perky Pat. And then kind of reused and recycled that information and, and some of the ideas in his book, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. And I, I went back and listened to the short story again. I didn't get a chance to reread uh, Three Stigmata, so I'm going to be relying off a of memory of that. But Perky Pat was this, uh, in the, the, the days of Perky Pat, it's basically post-apocalyptic world. And it's interesting because... Speaking of gameplay, it's all of the adults in these colonies, these kind of post-apocalyptic pockets of humanity, rather than doing anything to make their worlds better, <laughs> they are going out and they're creating these things they call layouts. They're basically like model homes. It's almost like a Barbie dream house kind of thing. They're crafting all of these items for their perky pet doll and Perky Pat, you know, they have this whole game where some people have television sets for their Perky Pat, some people have recliners for their Perky Pat, and they're all making these different things. They spend all their time obsessing about Perky Pat and who's got the best layout for their Perky Pat and all this kind of stuff. And eventually they play against another colony who's got their own doll and the um, Connie something, I can't remember, and just that Connie's more advanced than Pat and when the couple that played against Connie come back and tell the, the rest of the colony how Connie is and that Connie's pregnant, Connie's married, rather than being like Perky Pat, who is just in college at the time and, and just has a boyfriend, basically these people who left the colony are shunned and told to get the hell out of there. Nobody wants to know about Perky. Nobody wants to think about Perky Pat growing up, which also kind of speaks to them not wanting to grow up and this whole idea of them wasting their time quote-unquote with well not not quote-unquote they are wasting their time with perky pat and they're even their kids are just like why are our parents obsessed with this thing and it's just this crazy killer you know time killer that they have maybe to not think about how shitty the rest of the world is but they spend way too much time doing this particular activity I've never actually read uh, Perky Pat or Three Stigmata, but I, I was aware of of the the reference there and um, how in Three Stigmata the the this, the framework for the false realities uh, isn't a game or anything like that, but it's drugs uh, I believe called like candy and choosy or something like that. So yeah, I'm I, I'm interested to read those. I just haven't gotten around to them yet, but that sounds fascinating. I haven't read them either. But the 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 one thing I can add to this is that earlier we were talking about how this film is a lot of existentialism, which of course deals with the absurd. And a 
connection to Philip K. Dick, I don't know about those stories, but um, do androids dream of electric sheep? Blade Runner is also uh, an absurd. It's an absurd film. So not I mean, it's absurd, but <laughs> in the vein of the absurd. So so it goes his work goes right along with this kind of movie. It's not surprising to me that there's a reference to him in here. And I've never seen the thirteenth floor either, uh, but I, I was aware of like the, the the coincidence that you know these three movies about you know nested realities or false realities all kind of came out at the same time. You know, the Matrix existence and the thirteenth floor. But I also think think it's fascinating that you know you've got these release dates. You got March thirty first, uh, April twenty third, May twenty eighth. But on March sixteenth, I think something else came out that is really important to to existence and this whole idea of of nested realities or false realities. And that's the first, not maybe not the first, but um, for a while the biggest massively multiplayer online role playing game, and that was EverQuest. That came out just just two weeks before the Matrix, and then you know existence, and then the thirteenth floor. And um, I think that this idea of these persistent state worlds, or or these worlds that keep going even when you're not a part of them, um, speaks you know obviously to the themes of of all of those films. Um, you know, particularly the ones I've seen. I'm not sure about the thirteenth floor, but um, it's it definitely works with the Matrix and existence, and and how those worlds function as false realities or nested realities within our reality. And again, because I keep bringing this kind of thing up, but talking about like how I don't feel like they saw ahead in the future of gaming, the whole line of every game has a pause, right? And, and granted <laughs> EverQuest, what, like you said, it came out a couple of weeks before, right? Right. So we hadn't been there yet, but MMOs don't have a pause. Well, I mean, there was Ultima Online that was that came out in 1997. Uh, so there, there was there were MMORPGs around at that point, but EverQuest was really kind of a benchmark in that. But yeah, absolutely, the idea that that all games have a pause and he pauses existence. Well, that's not necessarily true. Not all games have a pause. Jessica, you brought up uh, Blade Runner and do Android stream of Electric Sheep. And one of the things that was omitted with the uh, adaptation of Blade Runner that we um, actually brought up on our Blade Runner episode is this whole idea of Wilbur Mercer and Mercerism, which is, interestingly enough, in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, it's a way that all of these people who are still left on Earth, and presumably people that have moved uh, to the off-world colonies, but definitely the Earth people, will basically plug into this virtual reality uh, scenario where it's almost this kind of like Sisyphus character who's pushing this rock up this hill, and it's a way that people can empathize with Mercer. And when Mercer gets cut, you feel the pain, and this you know, and it's all these people jacking into this reality of or fake reality of Mercer and his struggle. And it is very much like uh, later on with Three Stigmata, where they all, you know, are getting into these things through the candy and, you know, like experiencing the layouts of Perky Pat that way. So this this idea of this group think and of people, you know, having this shared virtual reality experience is very interesting that this stuff would happen in Dick's works, you know, so many years before. And then, of course, you know, you can definitely see where. Uh, Cronenberg was a fan of it. So if you guys haven't seen 13 Floor, so I'll tell you, it's interesting because it plays, you know, in the Matrix, you've got your two realms, right? You've got 
you think this is the real world, but this really isn't the real world here. Take this pill and we'll show you the real world and pull you out of your, your, you know, your Duracell case kind of thing. And with 13th floor, it starts in what looks like 1930s America kind of stuff. And then it moves to what would be 1999 America. And then at the very end of it, you find, oh, no, there's another layer on top of that. This whole thing has been a construct, and there's actually another thing on top of it. That always reminds me of that last line of Total Recall. I just had a terrible thought. What if this is a dream? Well, then kiss me quick before you wake up. It's no coincidence that Cronenberg at one point was actually set to do the uh, the film of Total Recall much earlier than Verhoeven did. And, and that's one of those where they have all these books about like, you know, oh, here are all these great movies that have never been made and yada yada. And I've talked about Alien 3 and how that changed throughout the years. The one thing that I want to read and nobody's written about it, so I've been trying to do the research, is just that the steps to come to production for Total Recall because I remember talking to Richard Rush on the very first episode of the projection booth and him talking about being set to direct an adaptation of Total Recall. And I'm like, holy shit. Wow. <laughs> Richard Rush doing that? And then from Richard Rush to Cronenberg to Paul Verhoeven and how many steps there were in between. And I read one of these earlier drafts of the script and it's amazing to see how it's still like and unfortunately there was no title page but whoever was doing this adaptation because it's very similar to to android dream versus you know the blade runner there's a huge shift from one to the other like the minority report short story to the minority report movie there's a huge shift from the short story of total recall or we can remember it for you wholesale to the final film but this script was a really nice kind of you know middle point for that kind of stuff. And I really wonder what Cronenberg would have done with that story. You need to get the guy who uh, who made Jodorowsky's Dune and make uh, <laughs> Cronenberg's Total Recall <laughs> and see uh, see how that turns out. He could he could do it. I wonder if there's like an 800 page book out there. A Bible, a Bible of like conceptual drawings and sketches and things like that. If there is, I'd love to get my hands on it. That, that would be fascinating. Where I'm just like, come on, Tash, and put that out. Put it out. <laughs> come on. Yeah. So it was great to see Perky Pat show up and it just, that helped, you know, unlock so many other ideas where it's just like, oh man. And to know that Cronenberg is a Philip K. Dick fan, it's just like, oh, that makes so much sense, especially when you, no Dick's work, and then you watch Existence, and it's just like, yeah, there's a whole lot of similarities between these, you know, different levels of things, and what's real, what's not. I mean, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Dick these days because of Man in the High Castle, and it's like, yeah, here's all of these people living in this world where, you know, Nazi Germany and Jap Japan won World War Two, but yet there's this other reality that's kind of bleeding through where they didn't win. So, you know, which is real, which is not. And because we live in one world, we think one is real, but maybe it's not. And just that whole questioning of these levels. I, I love that. And, and speaking of questioning, I love that end shot of existence when the Chinese guy says, are we still in the game? And that he's questioning reality. And then that look on Pykele and Allegra's face, we don't necessarily know if 
they believe that they are or not. They don't know. We don't know. It's, it's, you know, that's, that's the big question. Yep. It's that, that, like I said, because we've had so many mirrored layers of reality, um, by the end of it, we lose meaning. We, we, reality becomes unstable by, through the nature of having all of these mirrors and, and we've deconstructed it. We've destroyed it somehow. Nothing feels grounded anymore. And they're still, they're still after something. Like there's still, there's still competition there. Like, you know, we, uh, I, I criticize the competition in the game because uh, it feels, uh, like, like Jess said, uh, kind of naive, uh, in light of, of these virtual reality experiences and these art games that are, that are being created now in our world in the reality, as far as we know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that at the end of the movie kind of shows that they're still competing on some level, you know, they're still fighting for something, even if it's not in the game or maybe it is, who knows? We don't know. It's the, it's the spinning top right at the end of, <laughs> at the end of inception. It always reminds me of that look on, um, Benjamin's face and Ellen and Elaine's face at the end of the graduate where they've won quote unquote and they yeah. moved, you know, they've run away and they're on the bus. And then that moment of cold. <laughs> I love it. And where they're just like, we did it. We made the right choice. Did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the big question mark. But I, you know, I'm, I'm of, I'm of the mind that there's still time for Cronenberg to go back to his roots and make one more like classic Cronenbergian film. And I think that, that it wouldn't be a terrible idea to, to finally make his, his dick adaptation and whatever that ends up being. I think that would be a, a great way for him to close out his career because he's getting up there now. And, you know, as much as I, I like some of his late output, uh, like Eastern Promises and, and a history of violence, I would like to see him tackle something a little bit pulpier, you know? Yeah. Cause I think he has, I mean, we've seen what he could do with the fly and see how he can take that, what could be or should be a really pulpy idea. Man gets in a teleporter with a fly. Okay, you know, you've got the, the, the little fly with the human head and the, and the, the, the man <laughs> with the fly head. You can go that route or you can go Brundlefly route. And, you know, Brundlefly, I, I posted the other night that I was watching the fly again and there was one of my friends was commenting. I was sobbing at the end of that movie because it is, it's a tragedy at the end of the day, you know, just like that love story between, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. It's amazing that we have this tight love story inside of this sci-fi horror masterpiece it is it's very shakespearean it even starts in the middle of a scene i mean it's the whole, the whole thing is <laughs> is very shakespearean top to bottom and and again i mean tying it back to this movie one of the things in that movie also in the brood is this idea where the body like i was talking about before with the the idea of um uh freud and the drive and all of that so the body and the bioelectronic device the game pod create this other reality they aren't separate they're together and they change together just like in the fly where when we could have gone the route we could have gone like the tar- cartesian re- route where you know, the body and the mind are separate and he keeps his psyche, but he, he physically changes, but he doesn't. His mind changes when he changes into the fly. Um, he becomes a different person along with it. And the other connection I had there was uh, with the brood where her rage 
literally she literally gives birth to her rage the body is connected to the psyche in these worlds and that's really interesting and i think that you know that in in existence you can tie that all to existence and that ideas that these people bring to this game manifest themselves in the game like themes of the game uh come out through whether or not it's a need of the pod itself because the pod is like an animal that has its own needs you know introducing the theme of disease at one point in the game or uh the the game being about uh, an uprising and a resistance against virtual worlds, uh, which makes which gives uh, Evgeny Nourish pause because that's it, it was it's very disconcerting to him um, that 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 came up in his game and and you know certainly uh, that was with merit because he ended up getting assassinated by the realists who ended up being our protagonists or did he exactly did he? yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned a little bit about the Matrix. I talked a little bit about the 13th floor and, of course, with Existence. So with Existence and the 13th floor, those both had three, possibly four levels of reality to them. They each start at one of the levels of irreality, and it's just a matter of time before we know where they're at. With the Matrix, you have the two things. And then I've always been curious... As far as, you know, because The Matrix, the first Matrix movie to me is, bar none, one of the greats. But oh, yeah. two and three, they they don't just stumble. I mean, they, they, they bash their head into a wall and they just keep bashing their head into a wall. <laughs> That's correct. Squander <laughs> every idea they ever had. <laughs> In those sequels, you kind of get... Rather than another level on top of things, it almost feels like the space between spaces where you have that horrible architect subplot going on and, um, you know, the, the, the subway and the Merovingian and all that kind of garbage. And I've always wondered if they should have thought rather than going in between the levels, if they should have gone one level above that and shown what is happening above the machine level. Mm-hmm. It just, it always feels like they just, they, they didn't know where to go with it. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like they should have almost given the project over to somebody else to come up with those other movies because they had such promise and they just squandered it completely. I feel like you go a level above the machines. And, and while that's a film that you and I certainly would love to see, I think that the Matrix films are ultimately, especially in the world we live in now, rather conventional. And, um, you know, while they, they kind of were outside, especially the first one was, was very much outside of the box for its time period. The action sequences kind of grounded it into a popcorn blockbuster type, uh, feel that made it the hit that it was. And then the sequels didn't really feel the need to break outside of that. They kind of play around in, inside that and end up, and what, what ends up happening with those movies is that because they play around in the sandbox that they've already built, instead of building out the sandbox, they just put too much sand in the sandbox. Box and they, they get bloated. And that's what those sequels are, is they're, they're sandboxes with too much sand in them. And yeah, that's, you know, I, I absolutely would love to see a movie about what reality the machines actually live in or what programming that the machines, you know, what, what's inside their heads as opposed to, you know, the, the realities that the humans are living in. But, you know, that's obviously not the movie that they were interested in making. Or maybe the studios weren't interested in making it. I'm not sure. The first movie's so smart. It's so it's so grounded in theory, and it's really fun for you know a nerd like me to get to watch and be like, oh my gosh, that's totally referencing this crazy theorist. And 
and it's going to make me do a bunch of brain work when I try and figure out why they why they would put that there. Why why this random book lying on this random shelf is specifically in the shot so that you can see the title and have to think about what that means. And I feel like the the other movies just it like when people reference, it's the kind of thing where people are like, and if you notice that the number on the side of the ship is this, and I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't. It, you're telling me it means something, but it really it, the thought isn't actually behind it this time and that's that's very disappointing i mean it's that theory that kind of keeps that's that's the fuel that keeps these conversations going and and keeps <laughs> these great ideas about these movies happening and and expanding and and making people ask questions like well what if we looked at it this way what if we turned it on its side and looked at it from this angle you know we did an episode on our show about the matrix and we spent a great deal of our time talking about baudrillard and and sartre and and you know people like that and we spent a great deal of this conversation talking about people like lacan and Freud and theorists, you know, so, you know, going back to, you know, the matrix, I feel like those sequels, when we're talking about those sequels, we're talking about movies that never got beyond those theorists and those theories that we were talking about with the first movie and never managed to bring anything more interesting than the first movie brought. It's like meeting the guy at the party who's talking about how he just read the Communist Manifesto <laughs> and it blew his mind. Oh, that's so fun. It's like, oh, baby, there's so many more things out there. And, well, and then it's like meeting the same guy at the next party and he's still talking about the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> right, right. I just read this book called The Fountainhead. Oh, yeah. oh my. Yeah, you can, you can leave. <laughs> yeah, you can keep that one. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. This is the Big Apple. There are 8 million stories here. This is Wall Street. There's only one story here. Read. Wall Street is a man's world. 50,000 for blowing him, and all I had to do was moan and be excited. Let's go. Liddy, all well. Cocksuckers. Wall Street is where the action is rough. Yuck, I'm demolished. <laughs> Wall Street is where fortunes are made and lost overnight. Boom, boom, boom. From Tyler one day to your dummy corporation the next. No, this is not the time to panic. Look out, guys. Panic in the street. This is Wanda. Ah, the new girl. Oh, the new woman. Oh. The new girl. Slightly shady. She wants part of the action. Oh, spade is spade. Art, I stole Wanko. She'll do anything to get ahead. I don't think your wife would be too pleased to know that the new girl in the New York office has been munching your cock. You know, I've been looking for a handsome stud like you. You have? Wanda whips Wall Street. Wanda's world is sex. Job. Right now, I think I'm gonna die. Ah. 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 It's fast. Oh, and sex.
is opulence and sex. Is Veronica Hart. Wanda, how do you feel my tongue right down the crack of your ass? Oh, where is she? I'll murder us. Wanda whips Wall Street. A film by Larry Rabine, a Platinum Pictures release. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Wanda Whips Wall Street. I'm sure that we'll be bringing up lots of Lacan and Freud on that episode as well. So until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Dustin and Jessica. Now, what is the happening over at Popcorn Poops these days? Unfortunately, not a whole lot. We've uh, Jess is in her final semester of, of, of grad school. Um, she's about to get her master's degree in, in creative writing. Um, so we've been taking a very long hiatus, but there are plans in the works to get our show back up and on its feet. Uh, we will be finishing out our theme month that we left hanging back in November and that was eighties uh, fantasy month. Um, so the next episode that we'll be doing, uh, will be our 99th episode and we're going to be covering, uh, the beast master of the Don Coscarelli film. And then episode 100, we've got something special in store. So, uh, if, uh, if our listeners, uh, Old and new, if you've never heard of us before, if you want to go check us out on, on iTunes and on our website uh, at, at popcornpoops.com, we would appreciate it. And we will be back. And again, there's like 98 episode back episodes that you can, you know, uh, <laughs> you spend time on before before we come back. But, yeah, it should be probably in early summer before we're before we're back at it. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episodes. We'll have links over to Popcorn Poop, so you can check out those 98 episodes. Maybe by the time this runs, they'll be 99. Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. Grad school's yeah. almost done. We've Grad school's almost weeks. done. That's right. <laughs> All right. Whew. Okay. You also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode. As long as I'm not running late, every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.